Season 3, Episode 18. Peter Navarro, with special guest, Patriotic. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the attempted coup that culminated in an attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021. I'm Scott Kuhn. It's been a rather busy couple of weeks, so we'll get caught up on events before we move to the main focus of this episode, former Trump trade czar Peter Navarro and his work attempting to overthrow the election of Joe Biden in 2020. But before we get to that, I have a bit of a treat for you. I've had some very positive feedback uh, from listeners regarding the interview episodes, so I'm very pleased to interview Patriotic. Uh, That is his Twitter handle. It's patriotic with a 10 where the I and the O would be, uh, who is a sedition hunter who uh, has made some of the important tools that sedition hunters have used in conducting their research. So we'll talk to him about that and some of the other things that he's been doing, um, which include uh, monitoring some of the activities in, in various spaces and things that are going on with regard to uh, the January 6th defendants and the odd little community that has developed around them. So we'll get caught up on events first, then we'll move to my interview with Patriotic, and then eventually we will get to uh, what is a rather lengthy uh, bit of research I did on Peter Navarro. Uh, What I've done for Navarro is to try to reconstruct what questions would have figured in his transcript had he actually been interviewed, right? Of course, uh, Navarro is still facing a pending court case before Judge Maida in which he is going to have to answer for not having responded to his House Select Committee subpoena. So I've gone through all these other transcripts, and uh, there are 50 of them in which Navarro figures somewhat. Um, I've selected, curated, uh, something like the 20 most significant instances. Many of them, they're just asked uh, questions that appear in other transcripts, uh, most often about that uh, that will be wild tweet where uh, Trump actually cited, name-checked, uh, the Navarro report, um, and a lot of those are simply, no, I, you know, I, I don't recall, or, you know. So the most important and significant instances, um, including uh, some witnesses who you will be very familiar with, uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Donald Trump Jr., etc. and so forth. Navarro's, uh, the number of contacts Navarro made in his effort to overturn the election is highly significant, and I know a lot of people have uh, favorite conspirators, right? People they specialize in. Um, I don't really have one. On the other hand, I'm going to make a case that Peter Navarro is more central than many people uh, would assume. You know, that people tend to focus on the big three, Stone, Bannon, and Flynn, sometimes adding Giuliani. Uh, To that, I would say it's really the big five. Uh, You have to include Peter Navarro. But before we get to that, let's do the numbers, sourced, as always, from Sedition Track. Now, these numbers have changed. Uh, I'll talk about that in a moment, Um, but I'll just go ahead. There have been a total of 994 individuals charged, an increase of six since the last tally. There have been a total of 428 indictments, an increase of eight. Six deceased, no change there. Two dismissals, no change there either. One acquittal, same 660 convictions, an increase of 24 since the last tally, and 453 sentencings, an increase of 
20 since the last tally. Now, it's noteworthy that several of the most recent cases that have been charged have been brought against AFO, Assault on Federal Officer Defendants. Joseph Fisher, 52, of Massachusetts, Andrew Castleman, 29, of Valhalla, South Carolina, uh, that's Valhalla with a W, um, so maybe Walhalla, I, I don't, not sure, not familiar with that particular town in South Carolina, Quinn Keen, 35, of Montano, Illinois, and Rockney Earls, 62, of Chama, New Mexico. Uh, whose hashtag is Steampunk Lunk. Dishonorable mention in this case to a Nathan Pelham of Greenville, Texas. Not really a full, uh, going to give you a full profile on him, but he's a parading defendant. Um, and he faces the same four misdemeanor parading charges that all the parading defendants wind up getting. Uh, the ones, you know, again, you go inside the Capitol, the parading, uh, et cetera, and so forth. Well, he received notice from the FBI that he was going to be arrested and apparently became so erratic that his own father called on the police to do a welfare check on him. And by the way, that's not a thing that anyone should really do, right? You don't really want the police doing welfare checks. Not a great idea. Um, nonetheless, when the sheriff's deputies arrived, Pelham shot at them. So this is a guy facing four misdemeanor charges, the kinds of charges that people usually, you know, they get 15 days or they get probation, you know. He's shooting at sheriff's deputies, right? So um, he's, he's obviously now facing more serious charges in Texas, including felon in possession. So that may have something to do with why he shot at officers. You know, he's probably going to get a little bit more time than most of the other defendants because he has a criminal history and he currently has a probation officer. So presumably he's also uh, violated his probation. And nonetheless, um, this is yet another, you know, January 6th defendant with uh, prior felony convictions, uh, which, you know, continues a long trend. When Trump sent out the bat signal, that's who they got. So he's a nonviolent defendant who became a violent defendant in his home state, all thanks to January 6th. All right, so let's talk about a little bit about recent developments. Um, as I, I had already written this entire script, I, I apologize for not getting out. Uh, it's taken me quite some time to do this research. And, of course, on the day I finish, the verdict comes back in the Proud Boys case. So, main things, the main felony counts, seditious conspiracy. They originally tried to return a hung jury verdict on uh, Dominic Pizzola, but they instead decided he was not guilty. Um, all the other four defendants, Terrio, Nordine, Real, and Biggs, guilty of seditious conspiracy, joining the Oath Keepers in that. Obstruction of an official proceeding, all guilty. Conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging his duties, all guilty. Obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder, all guilty. Destruction of government property worth more than $1,000, all guilty. Pizzola, guilty of theft for the theft of a riot shield. There are other charges that they were hung up on. Um, they were not able to reach a verdict. Uh, for example, um, the other members, even though they didn't steal the riot, riot shield, were also charged with theft. Um, so 
I believe that they're not going to retry those charges. So what has happened is that uh, Judge Kelly has declared a mistrial on those counts because they were unable to reach a verdict, and those charges are going to go away. There's probably no point in bringing another case. Uh, this case took so long, and, you know, justice has been done and seemed to be done uh, because they have been convicted of almost all the serious charges, with the sole exception being Dominic Pozzola being found not guilty of seditious conspiracy. Nonetheless, he's facing other charges because of the theft conviction, and so he's, you know, six one, half a dozen the other, also facing serious time, all of them. So I look forward to the first sentencings in seditious conspiracy cases. We still don't know how much uh, time the Oath Keepers are actually going to get. All right. And of course, obviously the Proud Boys, right? I mean, the, the Proud Boys, we all know how, how much time they're going to get either. It's going to be a long time. Uh, also, quick note on the E. Jean Carroll case, which appears to be wrapping up in New York. I know it's not te technically January 6th related. Nonetheless, it's a legal proceeding against Donald Trump. Um, of course, you know, again, we already knew this. Trump is a serial sex assaulter. Uh, her allegations are absolutely horrific, and uh, he is not presenting a case. He had, like, one expert he wanted to call. They decided not to, to go with that. Trump's not going to testify. In fact, Trump made a pretext, manufactured a pretext to be out of the country, visiting his properties in Scotland and Ireland. So, yeah. And the, the evidence appears to be very strong, very credible. There's a man who wouldn't submit his own DNA. If you were innocent, why wouldn't you? You know, she's kept the dress, much like Monica Lewinsky. Um, there's unknown male DNA on it. So, yeah. Um, looking pretty, pretty guilty. Especially because, again, civil case, this means that uh, it can be, a verdict can be arrived at through a preponderance of the evidence rather than beyond a reasonable doubt. And so, therefore, um, a conviction seems extremely likely. Damages unspecified at this point. Um, but, you know, you know, again, we've learned how Trump has operated for years to uh, evade and protect himself from the Justice Department or justice generally from, you know, his many, many crimes. So, you know, in this context, I mean, it makes sense for E.G. and Carroll to have not gone to police at the time. I know it's probably a non-popular thing to say, but uh, again, this is someone who's very, very good at avoiding the legal consequences of his actions, so he may actually face actual consequences for his actions, in addition to all the other cases and, you know, things like the Trump Organization being found guilty. Um, Trump himself is going to at least, again, uh, have to wind up paying E. Jean Carroll a certain amount of money uh, for this verdict in this civil case, and we'll find out, you know, how much that will be. I'm, I'm presuming a guilty verdict. I don't know. Could be wrong. I would think they would find for the plaintiff, but again, you know, Trump didn't provide DNA, doesn't call any witnesses, won't take the stand, leaves the, you know, leaves the country. What kind of, I mean, what's the jury going to think about that, right? So, you know, preponderance of the evidence, it sure looks like they're going to arrive at a guilty verdict. Also, Mike Pence testified before one of Jack Smith's D.C. grand juries on Friday, April 28th. Now, we largely know what Pence 
will be testifying about or had testified about, right? Uh, things such as Trump's campaign to put pressure on him and overturn the presidential election. Now, this is still important because much of what we do know comes basically from hearsay, which is inadmissible, which, why do we need something that's admissible? Oh, right, because actually the prospect of filing charges against Donald Trump. So that's why this is important. So they can get admissible evidence of these facts uh, to charge Donald Trump. So um, it's that's the significance of that. And also, it is significant that he was brought in just a couple of days after the D.C. Appeals Court um, ruled that Trump's effort to prevent his testimony, right, not something an innocent person would do, by the way. Why would an innocent person care if Mike Pence testified? Um, you know, after the D.C. Appeals Court overturned that, my assumption had been, well, that's going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Nope. Pence goes right in and testifies, um, which, again, you know, is significant. So... There, I, I wouldn't have thought that the Supreme Court would have necessarily agreed to hear the case. They have tried to keep the taint of Trump uh, in, in a lot of these questions off of them, which is, you know, honestly, given how political this court is, um, is not necessarily something that, you know, I would expect them to always hold themselves to that standard, you know, considering how few standards they have in other regards. So, something to watch out for. Um, you know, I, I know there's this litany of, oh, well, this means they're almost done. This means they're almost done, you know. Um, we'll see, right? I, I, you know, SWIFT and uh, the Department of Justice, you know, that those are two words that have not gone together well with regard to January 6th and Amen. Also, on Friday, April 28th, Trump gave a hug to a convicted January 6th defendant a QAnon supporter named Mickey Larson Olson, 53, of Abilene, Texas. Now, Olson is a member of the traveling freak show of cultists who would travel around with Trump um, through his campaign and subsequently uh, IRL, um, pretending these are like Grateful Dead shows or something. I don't even know. Um, you've probably seen Larson Olson. Um, she's a walking flag code violation. She's got all these tacky sequined uh, clothes on like she's some kind of elderly superhero or middle-aged superhero, excuse me. Um, she's fond of driving a red car covered in Trump stickers. I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10 uh, with regard to MAGA cult fervor, she's probably an 11, right? So, you know, she said members of Congress deserve to die and other uh, kinds of Trumpist nonsense that you would expect. And, of course, Trump has embraced her in his continuing campaign to ally himself cl as closely as he possibly can with the January 6th defendants without actually paying their legal bills. I uh, don't know why they never actually raise that question. So as the election draws closer, I fully expect Trump to continue uh, to celebrate the legacy of January 6th, to appear with defendants, to play their, their crummy versions of our national anthem, um, and just continue to excuse their behavior. Now, there's no world, there's no world in which this makes sense politically, by the way, right? I'm not even sure it, it appeals that much with the base. Presumably, a lot of them would just love to forget about it, um, you know, and yet that's where we are because that's who he is. And finally, before we get to the interview with Patriotic, the New York Times has reported, based on three anonymous sources, that Jack Smith is now investigating the fundraising scheme 
after the 2020 election, in which Gary Kobe and the T-Magic group raised over $250 million for an election defense fund that was, of course, ultimately never created. This was, of course, the scheme that was detailed in Appendix 3 of the committee's final report. Now, again, of course, the, nothing really particularly new here. A lot of people seem to have been surprised by this. But, of course, listeners to this podcast will remember this was the big ripoff, um, the subject of the committee hearing in June of 2022, and also... Um, the subject of episode, uh, Season 3, Episode 11 of this very podcast. So I've maintained that it looks like this is a fairly, I don't want to say a simple case because it's a, a financial crime, but at its heart, if you raise money for one thing and then spend it on something else, then that is wire fraud. And... Uh, this is not, you know, rocket science. They said it was for an election defense fund. They didn't create an election defense fund. And they worked with outside counsel, Jones Day, uh, an organization, by the way, that has a long history that I don't, I don't necessarily want to get into. But if you want to look at, you know, links between Jones Day and many people in D.C., uh, you certainly can. You can go down that deep rabbit hole. Um, they don't come up in, in this often enough which makes me wonder uh, whether or not people there are talking to the Department of Justice. Um, I mean, they're attorneys, so of course, you know, uh, there's there's attorney-client privilege. Um, nonetheless, as we've seen many times in the January 6th series of cases, attorneys like to be able to practice law, and they don't like to endanger that. So the idea that they may be cooperating to some extent isn't particularly a, a weird one, even though, of course, they are ideologically motivated. So, good news on that, and again, not unexpected. Um, you know, I, th I think the committee did a bit of a bait-and-switch, saying, we're going to charge Donald Trump with seditious conspiracy, uh, and then, you know, putting this rather, uh, you know, detailed case in Appendix 3, it was, again, you know, the subject of, a, of an entire committee hearing. It's been out in the public, um, but many people appear to be hearing about this for the first time. And again, the the, the main new development is the fact that, uh, according to three anonymous sources, Jack Smith is definitely investigating the big ripoff. And part of why that matters, of course, is that Kushner and Ivanka, uh, other people around them, Alex Cannon, were deeply involved in this entire scheme. It gives the Department of Justice leverage. Um, the Save America PAC, of course, that leadership PAC that basically was turned into a slush fund that also had a whole series of payments to LLCs set up by Trump White House and campaign insiders. Uh, this scheme to enrich not only Trump himself, because Save America also paid a lot of money into uh, various Trump organization affiliates and Trump hotels, uh, basically self-dealing, um, but also all these other insiders. Yeah, so it is, you know, something that uh, it is, seems pretty obvious and um, it should be concerning to Donald Trump, obviously, and the people around him. Um, but, you know, if they're going to th throw him under the bus, you know, 
I think that that's a thing that's happened, right? And this is the reason why I focused on all these uh, clients who are represented by Daniel Benson, uh, some of whom had varying degrees of cooperation, um, as we've seen in their transcripts with regard to what they were talking about with January 6th. But, you know, those witnesses were able to give good evidence, and, and again, different people said different things, um, but pretty, pretty good evidence with regard to the plot to overturn the election. Um, and again, this whole operation uh, with regard to the legal strategy part of it uh, being coordinated by Dan Benson, and to some extent, one would believe, by Eric Hirschman, because that also sh shows up in the transcripts, that he's not merely a witness in this instance. He also appears to be coordinating a group of people centered around Jared and Ivanka who may be cooperating to some extent. We'll see as that plays out. Again, Jared is legally exposed, and uh, you know he could flip on Trump and say, look, I did this at Trump's direction because he did. All right, so let's now move on to the discussion with the Sedition Hunter Patriotic as we discuss open source intelligence and software he created to help enable Sedition Hunters to identify possible criminal defendants on January 6th and his latest efforts to keep tab on the so-called January 6th Patriot community, which seems to be becoming increasingly paranoid and yet also more vocal in their insistence that no one did anything wrong on January 6th, even the people who attacked people, police, and the media with pepper spray and baseball bats. I guess, uh, first, uh, a way of a bit of an introduction. You are probably well-known within the sedition hunting community, but not probably so much as, as people who are outside of that, uh, which is probably about half the remaining part of my audience. So could you describe what you do? with regard to the facial recognition and uh, the role that you played with regard to that? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm probably like the Sedition Hunter community's tech intelligence guy. Um, pretty, pretty early on, uh, right after the, uh, the attack happened, within a couple of days, I, I had this like interactive map of Washington, D.C. that you could like, zoom in on certain areas of the Capitol grounds and you can click on these points where a particular video was taken. So um, I made that, I made that Capitol map and that went viral. You know, I think, uh, I think Vice covered it and a couple of other news outlets. And it was, it was like the first tool that really let people um, really take in all the footage that day, you know, and, and where it was, where it was taken. Um, but then, uh, a couple of other people were working on even better maps than that, so I kind of pivoted and did more of what I'm, what I do for my day job, which is more on the, on the artificial. So we were just talking about the the point at which you sort of transitioned from the the map phase to the faces phase. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'm an AI specialist, so I, I make computer algorithms that can analyze large amounts of data. You know, so that's what I do professionally. Um, so not necessarily facial recognition, but, you know, that's, that's something I've always wanted to play with. So it was uh, a pretty, pretty easy switch. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I've sort of like carved my niche in the community as sort of the tech guy. I don't really do investigations myself into the seditionists. I just, uh, I make tools that make it much easier for the rest of the community. Now, one of the things I noted is that how, how much video is actually uploaded into it? 
Uh, the public version of that website, there's about 2,000 videos, and the algorithms uh, have extracted about a million faces from those videos. Not, not a million different people, but like a million different faces from individual frames of footage. My private version of that website, though, is it's currently running on about 50,000 videos, and uh, there's, a, there's a lot more there. But can't really make it public because it's it's very difficult to like automatically go through and make sure that it's not you know sensitive for public release. So yeah. Well, it's kind of, uh, would you mind if I put a link to it in the show notes? Obviously, not your private version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you couldn't okay. get to the private version anyways, but yeah. Yeah. Free. So and actually, it's kind of a good segue for today's topic because uh, one of the the things that happened, of course, was that. With the release of 41,000 hours of video just to Tucker Carlson, suddenly mm -hmm. everyone in the January 6th, quote, Patriot community, they all became sleuth. All this stuff's been out there, so much publicly available, they hadn't looked at any of it. But now they think, goodness, there's everyone's a Fed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's... Uh... It's cute. I mean, honestly, it is cute. Um, it, it just, it's absolutely bizarre. Like, you know, I, I, I mainly do documents, and so I'll see them post up. I was like, I read Ray Epps' transcript. Oh, you read a transcript. Thank you. There's 18,000 more pages. Okay, sure. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, the, 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 the Patriot community, I, I guess, like the, the actual Jan Sixers, they're they're forming like their own intelligence enclaves now, or at least it's what they call themselves. And they're, they're now going through the footage and trying to find anything that explains away their culpability. Um, they're still really latched onto the idea that, that this was some kind of intricate government operation. Um, they still think that Antifa did it. Now they think that Antifa and the government are working together. Now they think that Antifa and the government are the FBI. And it's, it's just kind of exhausting how, I guess, deep their delusions go um, to the point to where yesterday they're, yeah, I'm sorry, Scott. I don't know what's going on here. I, I don't know. Honestly, sometimes it does this. I get like five minutes in and then sometimes it'll be stable for like an hour. Um, my apologies. <laughs> so how, how deep the rabbit hole goes with delusions of people who think that the FBI, Antifa, and there's all one agency. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they now think it's all one and the same. That, that, that Antifa is like a group of federal agents paid for by the FBI. And, and you know, yesterday, this, this crazy interpretation that they have reached a new low. I mean, they, they're now looking at recordings of the January 6th events. They think that they have identified people in the crowd who are walking kind of funny. So the, the, the conclusion that they've now leaped to is that Antifa was in the crowd, they were attacking the Capitol, and that they were communicating with each other through butt plugs. This is their new theory. And uh, amusingly so, they think that these are FBI-issued butt plugs that are being used to coordinate the attack amongst Antifa members. And you just have to watch the footage to look for the people who are walking funny to find them. I didn't get much sleep last night because I was laughing so hard. Um, and it just, just wow. 
Um, but you know, but I, you I fully... good conspiracy theories, right? There's so many more theories, and the one that I, 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 I see over and over again, we know that this person has been identified, but they haven't been arrested, so therefore they are a fed. Yeah. Over and over again. And like people for sedition hunters, they, they keep asking themselves, why are these people arrested? And then it turns out it takes time to develop these cases. There's a backlog. <laughs> these people do get arrested eventually, just wait around. But for them, it has to be therefore fed. And it's always yeah. mad. I mean, uh, gosh. I, I tell you, if I was really on the Fed payroll, things would be better. Yeah, you know, but they, 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 they think there's just like tons of money flowing around. And they're just like hiring all these, you know, citizen suits. And no, <laughs> actually been zero contact with any of the Feds. I mean, the, the, the vast majority of people in the sedition hunting community are just private citizens. You know, people who like puzzles mostly. Um, for me, it's people who like technology and uh, ways that it can be used to potentially do a, a good for society. Um, and thank you for your service and everyone else in the sedition hunting community as well. Um, I, I think it's remarkable that they, you know, they, they pick up these, these odd little things and they just, they just go with it. And you've been hanging out, I believe in, in some of their spaces, right? Where they're, yeah. they're talking about FBI butt plugs, which is not a phrase I ever thought I'd say. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been I've been lurking on the spaces for some time now, um, under under a number of different accounts. Um, I, I think they'd be shocked how many people in their community that have the yellow rings are actually just sedition hunters. You know, most of them are just absolutely dead silent. I I eventually decided to to have some fun with them, but you know, all all in good fun. You know, I'm not. I think I think many of them are really worried because they think that we're just like trying to stalk them, and it's just the furthest thing from the truth. You know, we we only give reasonable intel if we think that you know there's evidence of the crime, and and the vast majority of these people are just their family members of those convicted, and, and they're hurting. And I definitely understand that, and they they have support groups and a lot of prayer circles, and, and it's a good thing. I mean, they need to support each other. But every once in a while, and, and the reason I monitor these spaces, every once in a while, there's, 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 there's calls to action to hunt down all the confidential informants that turned into these people. There are some occasional aspersions to violence intent towards people who identify as sedition hunters or people who may identify as Antifa. So those are the ones we're watching out for, you know, for, for safety reasons. And, and they then, also, yeah. I'm but sorry. When, when things delve into the conspiracy theories regarding butt plugs, we're going to have some fun with that. <laughs> it's it's pretty funny. I, I have to hand it to them. You know, I was pretty entertained. They're also convinced that there are agents who are surveilling them and uh, following the Patriot Corner people back to their Airbnbs, and uh, they're they're really the the paranoia has gotten. Well, I mean. I guess it was a short trip, right? But yeah, I mean, I, I, I could definitely understand their paranoia. Um, I think I think the honest to god truth, and and everybody who's ever interacted with law enforcement knows this. They are profoundly limited in the kinds of things that they can do because of the Constitution. 
they they have their hands tied behind their back. They're not allowed to surveil surveil Americans unless they have court authority, which in many cases can be very difficult to get. Um, you know, there there are a lot of things out there that private citizens can do to keep an eye on somebody suspicious that law enforcement cannot. And I noticed that the other day that you actually, there was a space I saw, I saw, I didn't know what it was. And I saw that you were speaking and I saw you were speaking quite a lot. I'm like, okay, this would be interesting. I, I logged in and you were already gone. They had booted. <laughs> so I didn't actually get to hear what you were saying. Um, but were you asking the normal, reasonable questions? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I told them that, oh, you guys have got me really worried about these sedition hunters. What do you know about them? You know, how, how do we know if we're being followed by them? Because I, I wanted to figure out what they know. You know, I want to I want to know, um, you know, what their intent is. If, if they're just, you know, concerned about their family members being in prison, I, I definitely get that. If they're intent on intimidating, you know, confidential informants, that's a crime. So for safety reasons, a number of us sedition hunters are keeping our eyes open for any of the bad actors out there that may wish us harm. Uh, so, so most of most of my questions in that space were uh, on that line, like, uh, "Hey guys, how do we know if they're in the room with us?" Wink, wink. And they, I and think I, they finally figured it out. Right, and I, I just, I, I actually think that, I mean it's actually more likely that some innocent person is going to wind up getting hurt um, because they're they're completely paranoid. Everyone walking on the si same sidewalk is uh, Antifa sedition hunting FBI agent with a butt plug, and it's it's their the mentality is, is scary. And moments after you had been booted, while I joined, they were talking about it a little bit, and they, they, the one thing they said was that they were going to get the sedition hunters, whatever yep. that means. Yeah, <laughs> yep. I mean that's that's why we uh, keep an eye on them. I mean, they, I don't think they figured this out yet, but all of their spaces are, are very trivially, um, well, we, we can, we can see all their spaces and we don't even but have no, to they're, they're on telegram that you can't go yeah. on telegram and find them there. Surely. Well, we, we can do that too, but I don't want to discuss how we do that. I, yeah, no, I know. Like, they were they were acting like they set up this utterly secure other place. This is their open, you know, forward facing, and that there's no one looking at us over here. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. I mean, I, I think uh, I think everyone needs to chill out. I think they need to chill out. I think I think some of the sedition hunters, to be honest, need to chill out too, because I I think there have been a couple of instances where people have kind of stepped over that line into. I don't know, stalking, but I don't know. I, I think I think there's kind of an ethical code of conduct that all of us understand. We are not law enforcement. We are not going after these people. We are, if anything, at most, if we find information, providing it to people who are actually qualified to do that appropriately. And uh, we live in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty, and we don't want anyone to get hurt. I mean, that's why we do what we do. We don't want anyone to get hurt. And that includes people suspected of a crime. So, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who, even though I'm a sedition hunter, if I see, if I see footage of somebody getting 
you know, their, their family arrested by an FBI raid. It, it breaks my heart because there, there are instances where it's like, okay, that's a little excessive, you know. At the same time, I understand how the federal agents are approaching this. A lot of these people do have guns. A lot of these people have made very violent statements online that are anti-government and they need to take proper safe precautions. And there's like a balancing act there of how does the government make these arrests without traumatizing family members and without putting themselves in risk. So, yeah, I, I guess that's just kind of where my head's at these days. Is, you know, right. What's well, the best way to do this? I, I find striking is that uh, apparently rather quickly, probably because a lot of people already had backgrounds in open source intelligence, norms, standards, and practices were developed whereby people wouldn't discuss names publicly or IDs publicly. And yep. yet these people, the targets, the minute they have anything, they're like, look at this. You know, <laughs> they're, yep. they're perfectly willing to go full down into the rabbit hole and possibly ID people who are completely innocent. Um, they've done, well, they've done it right. And they've done it to some well-known people yep. um, who, you know, just completely not involved in any way at january 6th like the i'm thinking of the was the uh scaffold commander um who they misidentified as a uh a prominent um journalist but yeah i I, i'm not familiar with that particular instance but i I can think of a couple of instances where j6ers who are clearly pro-trump um very conservative leaning Republicans have been now turned on by their fellow J6ers and accused of being feds. Ray Epps being the famous one, but it goes beyond that. There's a, um, I won't, I won't name her, but there's a, an elderly lady who has already spent time in jail for her activities on Jan 6, but has made a you, you can name her. They know, I mean, they don't listen to this. Oddly enough, it's kind of a strike. Like I, if you're like me, you, you probably listen to a fair amount of right-wing material, and yet sometimes I struggle with it. That's not who listens yes. to this podcast. Well, so fair fair say, enough. But I mean, you say Pam Hemphill, right? I mean, pro, you know, it's like they've they've got they've gotten crazy about her. Yeah, um, I mean that 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 poor thing has been through cancer chemotherapy, and you know she she she's done in what, in my opinion, is God's work. I mean, she's a former substance abuse counselor. I, you know. That's that's incredibly. She, she's got a big heart. It's obvious, and you know, although her and I don't agree politically, she's just a good soul. And, um, has has owned up to what she did, and has been encouraging her fellow J sixers to do the same. Um, but I, I haven't had any contact with her yet. There's so many J sixers out there now who are calling her a federal agent. It's like, oh, she's she's one of them. I'm I'm worried for her. You know, but we don't need this. We don't need this kind of threats of violence well and she's not the kind of person they that i i think they would recruit in in any event but basically anyone who differs with them on any kind of detail they've set up a rigid orthodoxy and when you when you set up an orthodoxy you're going to have heterodoxy and when you have heterodoxy you have heretics and when you have heretics you have to burn them mm-hmm. yeah and, and, and that's, that's- uh, that's that's somebody I worry about, you know, yeah. because she she's she's not protected, and uh, 
if there's one thing about the schoolyard bullies, they pick on the weak. And I, yeah. I just, yeah, and th- that's the thing. I mean, I they've gotten. There was a while, and you can talk about this, like sort of in the timeline where I would I would look for cases, and all their social media had been taken down. The only people whose stuff was up were the people who take it were taken in and immediately taken into custody. All the defendants took everything down on every site, and and over time they've grown more and more bold. To now they think they can say or do anything, and they can show up. For example. Uh, at the prayer rally on, on the corner there, and even when they've got, you know, they're on probation, and they think everything is fine, and uh, well, I think it just happened earlier this week, where, you know, someone had their plea deal revoked. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I'm glad that they're cracking down on that. Hopefully, they, they will do that a bit more. Um, because if you're barred from associating with certain people and going to certain places, then probation and parole needs to, to make that, you know, pretrial services, whoever, that's got to stick because it's a safety issue. Oh, sure. To, to play devil's advocate, because I like playing devil's advocate, I, I'd say nine out of ten of these Jan 6 spaces that are being run on any of these social media platforms are, are support circles. And... Um, I think a lot of these people are in pain, and I'm I'm glad that they're that they're finding comfort in each other's sorrows, you know. And um, I definitely sympathize with their complaints that many of their brethren are in jail without having a trial yet. I mean, everyone wants the justice system to move a bit quicker, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, if, if they're if they're associating with their J Sixer associates plotting new attacks or plotting um, harassment or crimes against confidential informants. That's a problem. We're going we're gonna to investigate that. <laughs> so there's a balance there, you know. And I, I just wonder if IRL, like if they're IRL, not supposed to go to certain places or meet with certain people, that's something that, that is uh, administered every day in our judicial system. They shouldn't get special treatment. Yeah. Just because they've defined themselves as political prisoners, um, that there's this old saying in corrections that you know it's it's really not necessarily always the the inmate who does time that the families do time with them, and in a sense, it's it is uh, harder on them. And I think that for some of the inmates who who aren't used to being in prison, incarcerated, some of them are, of course, uh, you know, who, who don't have lengthy criminal histories. You know, but again, some of them do. Um, this is a new experience. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. And it's interesting to me to see people who are like, you know, like second episode of this podcast was Shane Jenkins. Like, you want to do a conspiracy theory? How did I know that Shane Jenkins was going to be, you know, um, prominent and have a uh, start a charity and all this other stuff? You know. Um, yeah. But it's like, you know, he, he fit a certain profile. There's a certain profile. Um, I want to say Peter Stager, right, you know, Kentucky. Um, there were a lot of people who had long criminal histories who went to the Capitol and committed crimes of violence. And I realized early on, those are the ones, because of the criminal history, who are going to get the longest sentences. Yep, for sure. 
It's like that's something yeah, yeah. even Thomas Webster didn't have, right? I mean, he got 10 years, but he had clean criminal record. A lot of these guys, they're, you know, category six when it comes to sentence. And I they're Thomas, ten time. I think Thomas Webster is the is the first name in this conversation I recognize because I'm I'm so far from the from the actual cases, you know. I, I think I think if there's one thing about me compared to the other sedition hunters is I'm I'm very detached from the casework, and um, that might be a problem, you know. I'm I'm trying to get a deeper understanding of of what happened to each individual defendant and what their outcomes are, because that that helps me develop that empathy. Um, well, if you like they're, podcasts, they're, listen to the podcast because I do uh, yeah. inmate profiles, uh, defendant profiles, and then inmate profiles uh, uh, regularly. Yeah, um, I, I need I need to do that. I, I I'm one of those I'm one of those people that just has too many projects going on. You know, um, I, I I've got the day job responsibilities, so I, I work in science, and, you know, pharma. But um, you know, there there are there are times where a school shooting will happen, and then I'll get back to work on stuff. You know. How can we use technology to prevent attacks? You know, how could we, how can we use artificial intelligence even to, you know, monitor social networks looking for people planning violent things? You know, can can, can an algorithm tell you that a video is is somebody leaving a suicide note or worse, you know, leaving a, you know, a manifesto, and then act accordingly as quickly as possible? That's that's sort of the stuff that I I think about nowadays. And that's good. And one of the things I, you know, I think that there's so many different areas of specialization and expertise. Um, you know, it's like I've tried looking at, uh, you know, uploading faces. I think I found one person and they turned, you know, didn't do anything. Um, and, and it's like, to me, all these people look the same, right? I'll upload a face, put it in there. It's like, oh, it's a middle-aged white man, much like myself with a beard who's, you know, I mean, <laughs> so it's like... <laughs> Not good at that part of it, <laughs> and, and that and that Scott is precisely why the the site that you see publicly is so limited. Like the only videos on the site publicly are videos that I have confirmed are at the event. You know, and and there's occasionally I, I've occasionally found videos that you know even though the GPS coordinates of the video indicated that they were there and the timestamp was just right, it, it wasn't there. You know, I've had to remove those, um, but. There's just a much larger collection of videos that's selfie videos of people expressing their political beliefs, which is totally fine, but occasional selfie videos that people posted a week before where they're saying, you know, we need to hang politicians. And they they might have passing resemblance facially to, to somebody at the attack, but it could be a false identification. And, and on, on my private collection of videos, that's happened so many times. Like, I've really dug in. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the same person, but then I'll find proof that they're not the same person. And uh, yeah, I, so much work could be done if, if that collection could be made public, but I will never do that because it's just so sensitive. And it's it opens the door for so much abuse from people who don't have the discipline not to make false accusations and to dox people publicly, which so many people have done. And yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the trouble. Uh, at this point, some of it relates to ongoing legal cases as well, which is its own issue. And you also have the other issue where defense attorneys have been releasing material online. I mean, basically giving it to J6 people, and they're just putting it out there. And sedition hunters, I guess, are thanking them for their service. 
Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like there's this, this weird feedback loop, uh, you know. I mean, we're, we're nerds that like puzzles, and you're just giving us some more puzzle pieces. And it, personally, I, I don't interact with these people. I tend not to, for the most part. I tend to block people preemptively. Uh, but I understand there's, there's some people who are engaged with that community. Um, I just, it, it's just, it's its own little subculture. And it's like, I, this occupies enough of my headspace already. I don't think that that's something I really could spend time doing. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think in the early days of this work, it got pretty depressing watching all these videos all day of people doing violent things. Um, and there's like a new effect where I don't really focus on that footage as much anymore, but now there's the headspace of all the conspiracy theories and that, that gets overwhelming and taxing at times, you know, but, but then, but then when I see them doing totally normal things and totally pro-social things and uh, you know, when they're when they're coming together and saying prayers to each other and healing and that 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 does lift my spirits actually because that you know that that's these people moving on just as we need to move on you know that's um, a country that might be starting to heal from that wound you know and I hope it keeps going in that direction and not you know down that path to possible civil war I mean that's what that's what really worries all of us right. One of the things I, I wish that they could do is avoid the sunk cost fallacy and just admit who's really responsible. They were tricked. There wasn't the FBI or Antifa who tricked them. It was Donald Trump with his will be wild tweet and his I'm going to go to the Capitol and I'll be with you and you're going to be very happy people. And he was the one who tricked them. And yet when they, they focus their anger, they'll focus on sedition hunters or George Soros or Antifa but and they'll put out these public appeals for aid. They never address them to Donald Trump, who's supposedly a billionaire. Yeah, with with a couple of exceptions, there there are a couple of there are a couple of J six rioters who who should be in jail because they're a danger to the public. But with with those exceptions in mind, if I could wave a magic wand and make it so that Donald Trump paid for that crime of inciting a riot, and then released thousands of or I'm sorry, not that many people are, are in jail because of this, but I think I think the vast majority of them, if I can wave a magic wand and release them in exchange for Donald Trump paying for what he did that day, I'd do it. Yeah. With a couple of exceptions. Well it's more than a couple. I mean there there are hundreds of AFO people, um potential defendants. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess and I guess it's thousands of potential defendants in the next sense. But yeah, I, I think we worked it out one time it's something like thirty six hundred if you count insiders and then media smash and um, people who committed assault but didn't go inside the Capitol, things like that, uh, sprayers. And um, personally, I would like to see it expand to the insiders, uh, the, the Nick Fuentes types who, you know, were smart enough to leave. But meanwhile, the little buddies went inside and, you know, did things. Yeah, I mean, hard call with them. Well, there are people like um, Kenny and Keith Lee of MAGA Drag the Interstate who are major organizers and also went inside the Capitol, and yet nothing's happened to them. Why don't those people think they must be feds? I've never seen them speculate on some people who clearly could be, you know, I mean, it's like if that's your criterion, they never extend the logic out because they recognize that they are genuinely MAGA. Well, I mean, let's talk about the real feds that were there. <laughs> um 
who's who's the, who's that individual that got NSA clearance after after the January six riot? I can't even remember his name, but you know what um, I'm talking about. It was a younger guy, right? Yeah, younger guy. He, um, yeah. Let me see if I can find his name. Um, yeah, I keep I keep coming back to like Freddie Klein, Federico Klein, right? State Department. I uh, keep coming back to people like the the DHS agent, sorry, DEA agent from California, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, who went with his badge, of course. But these are volunteers. They volunteer. You know what I mean? There there was no conspiracy. It just so happens that the demographic that was targeted for the propaganda overlaps with the demographic of law enforcement. Well, yeah. Okay. So here, so three, three Marines were charged. Um, they had intelligence jobs and they were charged in the January 6th attack. One of them was a guy named Hatchet Speed. He was a, uh, he was an intelligence analyst for the Pentagon who praised Hitler. And, you know, these are the actual feds <laughs> at the January 6th attack. And they're not Antifa. <laughs> they're not working on behalf of the government when they did that. You know, it's not like the government wanted the Capitol building attack, but apparently a couple of people within government did want the Capitol building attack and they shouldn't have security clearances anymore. Um, you know, the, the, this is like Jack to share again, you know, you've got situations where a million in this, a million people in this country have security clearances and some of those people were inside the Capitol that day. And they kept their jobs afterwards, and they kept their clearances afterwards, and that is astonishing. Yeah, and you know Jeffrey McKellop, right? CIA contractor, uh, you know, warrior in our secret wars. Uh, you know, stabbed an officer, a captain, a MPD captain, in the face with a flag flagpole. Um, and there's clearly a problem with military intelligence. In particular, we had, you know, one of the organizers was here in North Carolina, former Army intelligence, lots of people, for some reason, associated with military intelligence, Mike Flynn, um, who took part on January 6th. Yeah. And Texera is, is definitely part of the same movement, even if it's just an online movement, non-IRL movement. That's It's an affinity that's identifiable to a certain people, class of people who are attracted to military intelligence. Yep. Yep. And I wish I knew why that was, but they they clearly have a problem. Um, and one of the things I think they need to do is to broaden the net demographically. Yep. I mean, if you look at it, it's like a lot of the, the people you know who saw the threat were not white males, but we're drawing almost exclusively on white males, and we have propaganda that's targeting that particular demographic. And the, the decision makers aren't as diverse as they need to be. You know, I I, um, I, I really wouldn't be surprised at the end of the day if, if Putin has just as much responsibility here as, as Trump. You know, this is a lot of this is foreign influence propaganda that is turning our own citizens against each other. And, you know, that that is a big reason why January 6th happened. That is, I think, underappreciated by most. Um, you know, a lot of this culture war stuff. Yeah, you, you've you've got you've got people like these intelligence analysts who were there on January sixth praising Hitler and Putin in private social media posts. We have a problem, you know, and you know that that's the stuff that really keeps me up at night is is the realization that the other superpowers in this world are starting to win 
because they've convinced us to fight each other. And that's their whole plan all along, right? That's how this asymmetric warfare stuff works. Is you, you convince an entire country's populace that their election wasn't real. And right. you would like, to kill each other. There would like nothing better for them for the United States to become a failed state. And yep. that's, it's all directed toward that goal. And it's been directed at countries that are close to Russia and, you know, us and European countries all over. It's, it's global. Um, it has its limits, but unfortunately, there's always going to be a certain proportion of the population that seem to be susceptible. Mm-hmm. And the, the more outlandish I think that they make it, the more appealing for some reason these people find it. I, 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 I just wish these people would wake up and realize that that's the true enemy here. I mean, they, they can worry about the deep state all they want, you know. Truth, truth be told, our, our intelligence community is more worried about overseas intelligence communities screwing up with our own population and our own political beliefs. And yet, I, I think there's, for some reason, um, you know, and now you, you, can't, you can't bring it up. There's, there's almost like this network of antibodies that have uh, set themselves up for like anytime you mention Russia, no, that's just, it's a fraud, it's a hoax and, you know, it's bizarre. I, I, I like your I like your analogy there. It's kind of an autoimmune reaction, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and they've gotten to the point where, you know, it's like they've the phrase Russia hoax has become automatic and yet it's clearly, clearly not a hoax. Um, and they began a long time ago um, they began back in the chain email era. I, I started personally seeing this stuff that looked pretty, pretty suspicious yeah. and directed at a U.S. audience. Yep. And they started doing things like trying to, to introduce misspellings, for example, to make their material more credible. That that, that would not surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's very odd, you know, it's like in, uh, rather than using British English, using uh, Canadian-American, you know, uh, style English. Um, but anyway, uh, right, what else have you gleaned from the spaces that, that you, you've been on? Some of the, because, uh, like I said, I, I haven't spent a lot of time lurking there myself. I mean, it, it's, it's overwhelming. There, there's just so many of them, because there's so many defendants and so many family members of defendants, and and, and as I said, the vast majority of it is completely innocuous content, um, you know, that I, that I praise them for. You know, they're, they're coming together and supporting one another. It's the occasional random comment about violent intent that I'm after. And, uh, you know, that, that is becoming increasingly common. Um, I mean, it, it, it used, it's still rare, but it used to be much rarer. You know, I think they're... They're starting to get really pissed off, and uh, that is a concern for future attacks. That is a concern for the 2024 election. You know, a, a concern that is largely being fueled by some Republican co- uh, politicians that are currently in, in active service. And it's it's very and scary to to realize that we're not out of the woods with this yet. It's disturbing to me that someone like Tucker Carlson, all this winds up, you know, basically he loses his job. Because he cost them money, not because of anything, you know, he knows what he's saying is incorrect. 
but yet, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's about to become much worse in that scenario. I, 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 you know, I think there's something deeper going on there that we're going to find out eventually. That if at some point maybe they got compromise on him and he changed. I mean, you can you can watch a metamorphosis over time. I've always assumed it was motivated by uh, just self-interest. He saw that's where the money was, and that's, you know, he just went ever further right. I mean, you know, he's a crack dealer. He's selling harder and harder uh, pure crack. I, I, I would not be surprised if, if the deeper issue here has something to do with foreign intelligence. Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> that's just my suspicion here. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and there have been any number of people who have, who've been transformed similarly o- over time. Um, I, I did make a note, though. I, I noticed that Tucker Carlson did his first show about the, the uh, Capitol surveillance video on March 6th, and he was fired on April 24th. That's 52 days. Now, I don't know if you follow Gematria, right? But 52 days, that's a very numerologically significant number. And they never... I, I, I honestly wish I could have an alter ego... To, to put out this stuff, but it doesn't matter because no matter how crazy I would make it, it's, it's it'll be worse than, you know. Yeah. I, it, it was a pretty short period of time for sure. I mean, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm reaching a little too much when I suspect that there's something deeper here. I mean, maybe that is the simpler explanation, but I don't know. There, there's, there's something going on there that I think is, is deeper than, than any of us know about. And I'm just, uh, I can't wait to find out eventually. We're never going to find out. We're, <laughs> the Warren Commission, you know, there's still people questioning uh, whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Epstein, you know, Epstein was a narcissist who killed himself rather than face justice. Uh, that's true. People look at that and they say, Those, you know, he, whatever. It's like people actually understand it, understand that narcissists and pedophiles those are both risk factors in prison. Those people kill themselves at alarming rates. Oh, yes. Um, but, you know, conspiracy theories, it's become a fact, right? Epstein has become a verb yep. or an adjective. Yep. Um, but, you know, parsimonious explanations. Unfortunately, we've entered into an area where I think the truth isn't parsimonious. Yeah. The, it's incredibly complex. The crowdsource insurrection was complex, and the propaganda is complex, and these networks are complex. Um, but I think that the, the I think you're right in the sense to focus on the human reality of uh, some of these defendants. That's not complex. They're going away, and their families are going to have to find a way to cope. Um, and, and and I wish it was different. I, I wish that the person that put them there. You know, the former guy. <laughs> I, w- I wish he was the one that was self-responsible. And, and, and I wish we could get back to, you know, protecting our country from foreign um, influence operations like that. I think I think the deeper overarching goal for all of us should be that. Is, is shoring up our democracy and making sure that it's safe from, from external influence. And, um, yeah. If, if I could make, if I could wave a magic wand and make it so that these people who were brainwashed didn't have to pay the price for the person who brainwashed them, I'd do it. 
Uh, that's a very good point. And I think that uh, perhaps maybe we should leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great talking to you finally. Great. Great talking to you as well. Um, you know, maybe we can uh, connect uh, some other time. Um, but uh, do keep me updated and I'll put uh, any link you want to send me. Just you can email them to me. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, any, any information you ever have, you know, uh, that you think might be useful in the show. Uh, just forward that on. I would really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for care, all, all your good work. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. So I want to thank Patriotic for appearing on the show. Um, yeah, it was a lot to not give away the, the lead. But again, um, the January 6th so-called Patriot community has now convinced themselves that there are people in the crowd on January 6th who are communicating remotely through FBI-issued butt plugs. So this is not a thing that I thought I would ever have to talk about on the show. I didn't think that that was... It just goes to show you how, how deluded uh, these these folks have, have become and how paranoid. Uh, I want to thank Patriotic again uh, for appearing and uh, for doing the hard work um, of, you know, just going down this rabbit hole with these people and seeing what they are doing down there. Um, it is really, really, you know, uh, pathetic and uh, sad and odd at the same time. Um, you know, that at this point, even two years later, after all the arrests, after everything else, all the blame is placed elsewhere. There's never any sense of responsibility for people taking responsibility for their actions on January 6th and thereafter. All right, so let's move on to Peter Navarro. Now, there are a lot of key actors involved in the crowdsourced assault on democracy that culminated in the January 6th attack. You had Flynn, Stone, and Bannon working together to coordinate many of the moving parts you had people such as Alex Jones, Ali Alexander, Alex Bruzowitz, Bianca Garcia, Gracia, excuse me, Nick Fuentes, Charlie Kirk, Ed Martin, and dozens and dozens of other people working to organize the actual rallies in the lead up to the 6th and on January 6th itself. You had Ian Northron, Kenneth Cheesebro, Mike Roman, and a slew of other people also working on the fake elector scheme. You had Rudy Giuliani headed up the legal team uh, after he forced out Matt Morgan's team in favor of the likes of John Eastman, Sidney Powell, Cleta Mitchell, Christina Bob, Linwood, and Jenna Ellis. But within the Trump White House itself, you, you who, you know, were the actors who were really most involved in the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Well, there are a lot of different people working on a lot of different things, and I've spent uh, quite a bit of time since the beginning of the year looking at figures whose main legal jeopardy stems from things that they did with regard to the big ripoff, the scheme to solicit donations for the election defense fund that was never created, funds that were instead paid into a leadership pack, the Save America pack, created by Jared Kushner at the order of Donald Trump, under the legal advice of the law firm Jones Day and Trump lawyer Alex Cannon, uh, another, of course, central figure in the big ripoff scheme. Now, they seem to have realized that none of the appeals and legal challenges would work, and so they just set up a system whereby they could pocket the money. 
And there were also hand-picked Trump cronies, such as Chris Miller, Ryan McCarthy, and Cash Patel, who worked together to delay the deployment of the D.C. National Guard on January 6th. I'm not even going to say allegedly at this point, uh, and that's a matter of public record. But when it comes to the question of actually overturning the election itself, the one key figure whose name emerges time and time again is Peter Navarro. Now, you know, a lot of people focus on, on some of the other, other people. I'm not alleging that there's, there's any one person. My understanding of the January 6th attack is that it was a crowdsourced thing. Nonetheless, Peter Navarro is linked to virtually every aspect of it. Now, as is well known, Navarro chose to defy his subpoena from the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. He blew off his appointment with the committee's investigators on March 2nd, 2022. You know, at least Giuliani showed up to invoke the Fifth in person. Navarro didn't. And Navarro is going to have to deal with the consequences of the criminal referral for contempt. It's noteworthy that Navarro drew one of the best judges on the D.C. District Bench, Judge Maida, who we've also covered here in the context of the Oath Keepers seditious conspiracy case, but who's also been a crucial bulwark uh, for democracy in other cases involving Trump, including rulings in three civil cases against Trump relating to the January 6th attack. So the transcript for Peter Navarro is very, very short. Because he was a no-show. They basically just say, yep, this guy didn't show up. Now, interestingly, in, in some other cases, uh, the investigators read their questions out into the record. And they don't do that for Peter Navarro. Uh, perhaps because they knew that Navarro would be answering similar questions in front of a grand jury at some point. Now, this, in and of itself, is curious. Uh, it could be that Navarro's appointment was earlier than some others, but I, I don't think so. I mean, you look at the way some of these no-shows and non-cooperating witnesses go, um, they're just treated rather differently. And you'll note that, like, Ed Martin of the Phyllis Schlafly Eagle Forum, uh, there's also no questions given. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not a question of the date. Um, for Mark Meadows, for example, the investigators offer some summary of the key questions that they would have asked him had he shown up. And that hearing was shown on December 8th, 2021, and Navarro's was on March 2nd, 2022. It could be that they don't want to tip their hand, that, they re that this was something that they did with earlier ones, and they said, well, we're going to read these questions, but after um, a while they decide, you know what, let's not tip our hand. We'll just uh, make a note that this person didn't show and proceed from there without reading our questions into the record. I, I don't know. Um, now, again, for my purposes, of course... I would have preferred that they did read the questions into the record, uh, but they, they chose not to do so for whatever reason. So we have no way of knowing, really, at the present time, uh, why that's the case. At any rate, the failure to even document the questions they would have asked Navarro makes my job a, a, a little bit tougher, and it's one of the reasons why there's a long gap in between episodes. Uh, so I've, I've taken a different tack here. Instead of looking at the questions they would have asked Navarro if he'd actually showed up, I looked at every time his name appears in the transcripts of other witnesses. Navarro's name appears uh, quite a bit in the final report of the committee, and I will be using the transcript testimony, transcribed tes testimony de depositions, uh, to sort of reconstruct the case against Peter Navarro here. Now, between all these sources, 
there's lots of evidence that offers more than a hint as to what a case against Peter Navarro might contain. So other than his own non-transcript transcript, Navarro's name appears in 50 other witness transcripts. And you'll find a few other figures, uh, other than Trump himself, who figure, you know, in so many transcripts as, as Peter Navarro. And in such a variety of contexts, by the way. So again, that's one of the things that makes him interesting. Um, you know, well, I don't want to say interesting, but of interest to investigators is the fact that he is really involved in so many other things. Despite his job as, quote, trade czar, all he was doing was trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election in the post-election environment. So here are the transcripts in which Navarro's name appears. Alex Cannon, Alex Jones, Alexandra Payate, uh, a Bannon affiliate, Ali Alexander, Amy Swanger, the, the other person in the Capitol with Team Crazy, sorry, in the Capitol in the White House with Team Crazy on December 18th, in the famous meeting, Andrew Zach Parkinson, Andrew Hitt, Andrew Surabian, Anthony Ornato, Austin Ferrer, Ben Williamson, Bernie Carrick, Caroline Wren, Cassidy Hutchinson, Chris Hodgson, Christina Bob, Derek Lyons, Donald Trump Jr., Donnell Harvin, Dustin Stockton, Eric Hirschman, Garrick Ziegler, Greg Jacob, Ian Northron, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, Jason Miller, Jeremy Liggett, John McEntee, Keith Kellogg, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Mark Short, Mark Fincham, Matthew Morgan, Matthew Thomas Walter, Jenna Ellis, Mike Flynn, Mick Mulvaney, Molly Michael, Nick Luna, Pat Cipollone, I always want to say Pat Cipollone, um, Patrick Byrne, Robert O'Brien, Rudy Giuliani, Scott Coons, Sidney Powell, Stephanie Grisham, Taylor Budowich, and William, or Bill, Stepien. So, given that we don't have a transcript for Navarro, or even a transcript of the questions he would have been asked, I had to turn to these transcripts to piece together what exactly the committee has on Peter Navarro. And I have curated this a bit to winnow the chaff from the grain, if you will. And so I'll cite only the transcripts that have the most relevant details. So this is a bit more labor-intensive uh, than the transcript work I've done in the past on the podcast, but Navarro's clearly worth it. The Navarro report was the pretext that Trump used to summon the mob of attackers in the cap to the Capitol, and it was early in the morning of December 19th that he did so, right? The Will Be Wild tweet comes um, just a few after, hours after Navarro's lackey, Garrett Ziegler, had let Flynn, Byrne, Powell, and Swanger into the White House, and, of course, Garrett Ziegler had been traveling extensively to different uh, contested states in the post-election period, seeking to overturn the election, supposedly on his own time, but not really, right? So there's a Hatch Act violation. Uh, Navarro is a direct link between Trump and the mob of attackers, a direct link with Flynn, Powell, and Bannon. And, uh, of course, he's appeared on Bannon's War Room in episode 980 on Rumble. I'll link to that in the show notes. And also, in keeping with what we learned in the last episode with Jules about the Council for National Policy, he has ties there as well, uh, having spoken at the CNP in May of 2019. I'll post a link to that video in the show notes. Um, but before we get to the transcripts, a few words about the Navarro report itself. 
I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it is a hot mess. Now, Peter Navarro clearly doesn't know much about how elections work. And that's something I've, you, I've encountered many times with uh, various Trumpists. It's all a mystery to them. They've never looked at election returns coming in, and so everything that happens is some kind of conspiracy. You know, according to them, it never happens, for example, that early returns are different than late returns. When, if you are someone who follows this regularly, go to your Secretary of State's webpage, watch the returns as they come in, and surprise, surprise, rural precincts and urban precincts oftentimes report their results at vastly different times. It is a regular feature of our elections, and is something that, if you study this at all, you will observe observed many times. And it's very frustrating when your candidate has an early lead and then they are overcome by uh, returns that come in later. Um, it happens all the time, though. It's not weird. It's not a conspiracy. Uh, there can be a red mirage. There can be a blue mirage, depending upon what state you're in and when returns come back. In any event, um, according to you know Navarro, right, everything is potentially sinister. And so um, the first thing you need to know about the Navarro report I, really is, is the tone of the thing. Now, Navarro doesn't pretend that he is yeah, objective in any in all of this. Uh, bizarrely, despite the fact that Navarro himself had been a lifelong Democrat, he never uses the term Democrat as anything other than an epithet. He's also unaware that there's any distinction between the noun Democrat and the adjective Democratic. Now, most writers would you know, not use such kind of blatantly partisan language in a document that purports to be an objective assessment, but not Navarro, right? There's no far-right trope he won't use. So he's, he's always using Democrat as an adjective, uh, you know, which is, of course, uh, the, the same way they would do it on, on Fox News. And, of course, as a former Democrat, he knows better. Um, there's also how he treats the COVID-19 virus. And just to be clear, I'm going to give, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a reading here. Uh, I can't do Navarro's accent, um, but he writes, quote, Democrat Party operatives frequently hid behind the shield of the Chinese Communist Party, CC virus, and resultant pandemic to further their goals of boosting the absentee and mail-in ballots in key battleground states, end quote, from the Navarro report. Now, again, note that this was not an option that was just available to the Democratic Party. I've run GoTV operations. If you were to tell me that there was, for whatever reason, a broader window for absentee and mail-in ballot voting, I'd get that out to my volunteers. I would pounce on that. And anyone experienced in organizing around elections would do the same thing. Republicans, Democrats, doesn't matter. If the rules change somehow to make it easier to vote, then you, you find a way to get everybody to the polls. That's normal. That's not a Democratic thing. That's not a Republican thing. That's just what you do to win elections. And, you know, Navarro just makes this into something sinister. But in point of fact, you know, I'm sure maybe not at the national level because Trump decided not to do it, but, you know, there are probably many uh, local Republican operatives and uh, political people uh, who also tried to increase their mail-in balloting and, no excuses, absentee balloting. Now, Navarro also makes a big deal in his report about uh, 
increases and changes in turnout in specific places, and fraud is his explanation for absolutely everything. The reality is that many of the changes that he examines are a regular feature of elections, as I've said, but he doesn't understand that, doesn't want to understand that. You know, the electorate is different in every election. The candidates are different. The issues are different. The organizations are different. And even the rules are oftentimes different. And outcomes, of course, are different. Nonetheless, Navarro finds everything suspicious. Quote again from the report. Quote, In some cases, however, there were instances where these partisan and historical patterns were violated. It is precisely such instances that either outright fraud or machine inaccuracies or manipulations are most likely to be operative. As one example of such statistically improbable vote totals, there are the results in Arizona's 5th Congressional District. In one precinct in the suburb of Queen Creek, the vote percent for President Trump dropped dramatically relative to 2016, from 67.4% to 58.5%. Page 138. Um... So, okay, what could, that, that, yeah, I mean, you can see what he does here, right? So he starts off talking about an entire congressional district, but then he moves to one precinct in the suburbs, and he finds it alarming that percentage of Trump's margin of victory in the precinct, which he still won, drops from 67.4% to 58.5%, which is an 8.9% decrease. Again, if you've ever actually looked at things, especially on the precinct level, that is perfectly normal. You will observe similar swings at the precinct level in just about every election. This is a regular feature. Voters change their mind. The composition of people in the precinct changes over time as well. And it's, So he says that these norms aren't violated. It's not violation, right? It's, it's changed. And it didn't even change that much. It didn't even change enough to swing the results in the precinct. So it's, you know, there's no measure of the, quote, statistical improbability of this because you can't measure that. Yeah, according to this, you if, you, if that's your standard, uh, a 9% swing in one precinct, you're going to find that in, in every election. Um, and again, if you he actually cites an article, by the way, in this, as so-called proof of this. If you actually read the article itself, you draw an entirely different conclusion. Quote, Though it alleged a higher number of duplicates in Queen Creek, the lawsuit didn't say how many of these were this year or in previous years. Willinchek said observers witnessed an unusually high number of duplicates, but hadn't yet received these numbers from the county. End quote. So, there's no evidence to, to support this dubious claim. This claim that concerns a decline in the Trump share of the vote in a single precinct that Trump won handily anyway. So it's very typical of the kinds of claims that Trump makes in the Navarro report. There's this whole series of sort of non-smoking guns that are just easily debunked. I can point you to thousands of other precincts where there are similar swings over a four-year period. And by the way, swings that actually determine the outcome. This wasn't even outcome determinative. So, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about or doesn't care. Again, I don't want to spend too much time, um, you know, relitigating the Navarro Report. It's not designed to stand up in court. It's just a document that 
Navarro produced for Trump uh, that he then used to invite the mob to attack Trump, uh, to attack Congress. Now, uh, the word Soros, for example, appears 44 times in the report, usually in the context of describing someone Navarro doesn't like as, quote, Soros-backed. Um, at same times, like, he just takes these random kooks and gives them undue weight, and their agendas are, are never mentioned at all. Russ Ramsland, for example, is simply described as a, quote, cybersecurity executive and former NASA analyst, end quote. When, of course, this is someone who had a partisan agenda, he knew what he wanted to find, and he found it. Um, so Republicans that Navarro doesn't like are also described as useful idiots, a phrase that occurs eight times in the report. And he makes conspiracy theory claims that would make the John Birch Society flinch. Claims such as, quote, Zuckerberg also has expressed sympathies for Chinese Communist Party ideology, end quote. There's use of random capitalization and all caps throughout the report. He cites these mainstream press sources while lying entirely about what the actual articles actually even say. Um, he also cites sources such as the Washington Times, Breitbart, and Steve Bannon without any qualification whatsoever. And, of course, he cites zero political scientists, uh, zero, you know, none of the ex large and extent literature on elections. There's no evidence they even corresponded with even an, a single actual scholar of elections in the United States. And he also, he likes to describe the Navarro Report as a three-volume report. Well, like, you know, he's got volumes that are like a, basically the length of a chapter in, in a book, right? So, I guess three-chapter report isn't as good for his purposes. Um, but, yeah, it's not a three-volume report. There's, you know, three uh, relatively short pieces that his staff of young, inexperienced people cobbled together uh, without reading the articles, without showing any understanding of what was actually contained within, citing uh, unreliable sources as uh, trustworthy, and just putting it in, uh, you know, with the sort of, you know, maximum spin that they can put on it, and with zero reference to actual facts or any understanding of how American elections actually operate. All right, so moving on to sort of reconstructing the, the Navarro transcript. Again, don't know what uh, they would have asked Navarro because he decided to ignore his subpoena. Um, but let's just go to some of the people who are asked about Navarro. And the logical place to begin, of course, is with Garrett Ziegler, the aide to Peter Navarro, who was very active in the effort to overturn the 2020 election. And as I mentioned before, the person who let... Uh, Powell, Flynn, and Byrne into the White House on November 18th, 2020. Now, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, Ziegler is now busy working through his Marco Polo organization to pump out absurd propaganda relating to the fake Hunter Biden laptop. Now, as a side note, I've always had a question with, in my mind with regard to is how Marco Polo can be an LLC and also a 501c3. Um, interestingly, Hunter Biden, his attorneys at Winston and Strawn, have asked the same question now. They have asked, you know, 
why is this LLC also a 501c3? And so they actually filed a letter with the IRS in March. Uh, see the show notes for a link there. So, oh yeah, no, apparently you, you can't actually do that. Seems pretty airtight. Uh, this, act, this letter from uh, Hunter Biden's law firm contains gems such as this. Quote, I see you, I, that's the letters I see and you, I see you and Marco Polo appear to be operating as an alter ego of Mr. Ziegler. Mr. Ziegler is ICU's sole member and is referred to as the founder of Marco Polo. Donors appear to conflate and interchange Mr. Ziegler, ICU, and Marco Polo as evidenced on the donor wall for ICU. It is possible under the circumstances that contributions to ICU's earnings inure to the benefit of Mr. Ziegler personally. End quote. Yeah, you think? Now, that's, that's a whole other rabbit hole. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, seems pretty suspe suspect. I already talked uh, in an uh, earlier episode about the whole uh, issue with Ziegler and Marco Polo and his uh, registered agent's office and uh, how he established this organization. That appears to be basically just him, just a way to fun funnel money from donors directly into his pocket and to, you know, continue to profit off the Trump regime two years later. So, back to Ziegler. Now, his transcript is relatively short because he invokes the Fifth Amendment to respond to virtually every question. He's asked if he did any work for the Trump 2020 campaign while at the White House, and he invokes the Fifth. They ask him if he did work at the direction of Peter Navarro, and he invokes the Fifth. So... Um, I'm not, I'm going to forego my, my usual style of reading directly from the transcripts, uh, for, for Ziegler, I don't want to have to reread the whole thing, it's kind of, kind of awkward, but if you just look at the questions, and assume that the questions relate to things that the committee already knows that Garrett Ziegler did for Navarro, you can turn them into positive statements. So what I'm going to do is simply rephrase the questions that the committee investigators asked Ziegler as statements of fact. Navarro said publicly that several members of his staff had been allowed to work on their own time in battleground states. And Ziegler's asked if he's one of them, and so, of course, again, we can infer that he was. And again, the ruse that this work was done on his own time is necessary to avoid a Hatch Act violation, but, you know, it clearly doesn't stand up. He clearly did violate the Hatch Act. Federal employees aren't supposed to do political work on the government time, and he certainly did. So, um, they believe that the committee, that is to say, their investigators, believe that Navarro instructed Ziegler to attempt to overturn the 2020 election, and that he discussed strategies for overturning the election with Navarro, and that he was aided in these efforts by Joanna Miller, Hannah Robertson, Alexander Zarka, Brendan McComas, and Christopher Abbott, the other members of Peter Navarro's staff. We can infer that every analyst at the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Pro Policy, the office that the so-called trades are heads up, was doing similar work on behalf of Peter Navarro and the Trump campaign. Also, uh, it's apparent from the questions that Ziegler was in contact with Christos Macritus, Rudy Giuliani, Emily Newman, and someone named Riley, who I keep wondering might be uh, Riley June Williams. Um, Ziegler met with Powell, Giuliani, Phil Klein, 
and Mike Tremarco at the Westman Hotel in Arlington in November of 2020. He also met with a team of analysts working for Patrick Byrne and Mike Flynn at the Trump Hotel in D.C. in November of 2020. Navarro also traveled to Lynn Woods Ranch in South Carolina and was also privy to how Bannon and Navarro worked together to fabricate a plan to overturn the 2020 presidential election, the so-called Green Bay Sweep, which Ziegler was instrumental in implementing. Ziegler had also claimed that there was a time when he worked for the Navarro Report for six hours a day, and having looked at Ziegler's screeds produced through his Marco Polo group, I certainly believe this, right? If you look at the Navarro Report and the report on Hunter Biden's laptop that Ziegler wrote, uh, there's it looks to be the, the same kind of author who, uh, you know, it, it basically reads like it was written by a, uh, a college freshman, one who doesn't know how to cite sources or, you know, one who's not wedded in any meaningful way to the facts. Now, Ziegler's asked specifically about his own effort to investigate allegations of bribery contained in the Navarro Report and also his travel to the state of Nevada. They asked him about Mark Cook, a Mark Lind Mike Lindell associate, and Phil Waldron, as Ziegler apparently helped Waldron create his PowerPoint presentation that he shared with members of Congress. Ziegler also worked with Ivan Reichland and is included in an email chain that they got from Mark Meadows from Reichland, describing a, quote, Trump path to victory, and Ziegler helped to distribute this email. Ziegler also spoke with Reichland about the subject of an email that Reichland sent on December 23rd, 2020, referring to the Operation Pence card. Ziegler also acted as a conduit between the White House and Patrick Byrne, and was asked by Byrne, on December 19, 18th, again, to let them into the White House. And uh, he was also assisted in this task by National Security Council aide Patrick Weaver. The committee also asks Ziegler if he was at the Willard on January 6th, and Ziegler invokes the 5th. All right, so I know I've gone through all of this before, but that's about as tight a summary of Ziegler's transcript as I can manage. So through Ziegler we get a sense of how critical Navarro was to the plot to overturn the election. And so now, I'll turn to the transcripts of some of the other witnesses, uh, selected witnesses. Uh, many of the instances, like, look at all 50, they're, they're swinging a miss. They ask them about the Navarro report, they ask about the Trump tweet, and the witnesses don't have anything substantive to say. So, I will skip uh, those. I will focus on the witnesses that I feel have the most to offer with regard to insight into Navarro's role in the effort to end electoral democracy in the United States and institute a permanent Trumpist dictatorship. Alright, so first I'll turn to the testimony of Alexandra Priate, or Priate, I'm not sure, uh, Priate, from April 5th, 2022. Priate is an associate of Steve Bannon and has an intimate knowledge of Bannon's affairs and is a good proxy for Bannon himself who committed contempt of Congress in ignoring the committee's subpoena. Now, it's noteworthy here that no member of the committee showed up, which is kind of odd, that's, that's a little puzzling. My impression of her transcript is that she was a very cooperative witness overall, which is surprising for someone who was working for Steve Bannon. She actually has better than average recall, 
and uh, doesn't have the evident defensiveness that I would have expected from a close associate of Steve Bannon, who, again, didn't even bother to show up. I should probably add at this point that I've at least skimmed every single transcript with the exception of the rioters, and I've read many of them closely, although I've taken notes on fewer transcripts than I would like, mea culpa, um, but, you know, that is ongoing work. So I can read them much faster than I can actually take notes. Um, at some point, if I'm ever able to take notes on all of them, I'll make that available uh, to anyone who wants them. At any event, Preate says that she's friends with Navarro, that she worked with him on his latest book project, but also notes that, quote, he's never paid me, end quote, and claims that she hasn't, quote, talked to him in a long time, uh, 34 in her transcript. Investigators asked Preate about conversations that she had with Navarro in December of 2020, and Preate actually complied with the committee, and they actually have her phone records. So, very useful evidence from her. So, here's her response to the question about Navarro in December of 2020. Answer. So, he had, you know, he's a former Wall Street guy, and he had done his own analysis based on real based on what he perceived as real statistics. So, not anecdotal evidence, but things that he had put into models. And he did reports on that. So, I helped get those reports to media. Now, note that catch here, right? Preyata realizes that Navarro's statistics might not be real. They certainly aren't, um, but they might appear to be real to the poorly educated. And she also talks about models. There's no models. There are, there's no at attempt at actual uh, modeling either, you know, formal modeling, uh, any kind of, of you know, uh, logistic regression. It just doesn't exist. There's no actual statistical analysis in the Navarro report. Now, the investigators asked Preate about the role that Bannon had played in crafting the Navarro report. And the answer is, quote, I mean, he, he obviously had him on the show. I don't know. You know, if he assisted in writing any of it, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure, but he's, you know, he's a frequent guest about those reports on the show, page 131. So, she doesn't want to say it, but yes, yes, Steve Bannon did contribute substantively to the Navarro report. They also asked Preate about the so-called Green Bay Sweep. Um, quote, well, since I mentioned I do love Vince Lombardi, I knew what the Green Bay Sweep was, but I'm not a football buff, but I do love Vince Lombardi. So anyway, it was something that Peter had in his book, but it wasn't really specific. So I don't know exactly what it was, but he's talked about it. That's my understanding. And unfortunately, I didn't read, not unfortunately, I didn't have time to read the book. So what, what my understanding is that the big idea was that people in the legis the U.S., in the Senate would explain what the election integrity issues, and that would speak to it in a formal way on the record. And Peter has said that's why he and Steve always, that never would want any violence on January 6th, because what they wanted was to have those things talked about formally. Page 132. I'm sorry about how broken that sounds, but that's how it appears in the transcript. She's clearly stumbling in her efforts to recall what the Green Bay Sweep actually is. They then press Preate 
on Navarro uh, a bit more. Question. Mr. Navarro says that Mr. Bannon was the hero for coming up with this. The plan involves Mike Pence, the vice president, and some role that he would play or actions he would take on January 6th. Does that ring a bell? Answer. It It may be. It may be. I mean, I just want to say, because I don't want to, I just, I mean, I, you know, Steve's one of my clients, and I have anywhere from, like, six to ten other clients. So, if I try and know as much as I can about each client, but I'm not a, an election integrity expert, it's not my first and most cared about passion. So, I, I generally will know something. I'm a generalist in that regard. I'm a specific person in the lives of my nephews, but I'm a generalist in terms of, like, what all was going on. So, that's what I recall. 133. So, yeah, a bit of a non-answer there, right, with regard to Operation Pence card uh, and the, the Green Bay sweep in the Navarro report. All right, so let's move on to uh, the context of a meeting with donors at the Trump D.C. Hotel in a room called the Trump Townhouse on January 5th that Priate was also asked about. Quote, they wanted, Caroline Wren wanted Steve to come and speak. And then, I don't think he ever came, but Peter Navarro spoke. But they had just had, it was just, again, nobody knew it was going to happen the next day. So it was just kind of just going to be a party to see the election results and that sort of thing. End quote. Page 144. By the way, that's not, why would you have a party on January 5th to see the election results? Okay, whatever. Again, Preate also mentions Navarro in the context of Navarro acting as a replacement for Steve Bannon at this meeting at the Trump Hotel, the Trump Townhouse, on January 5th. Quote, so I just remember they wanted Steve, but I don't think Steve came. They wanted Navarro. I think Navarro came. And I don't really remember, and then, you know, Page 146. I mean, seems pretty suspicious. I don't know if anyone actually wants Peter Navarro to come speak, but at any event, uh, it points to this ongoing nexus of conspiracy between Bannon, Navarro, and the donors behind January 6th. All right, so let's move on to another key witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, who had a lot to say regarding Navarro. After having read a lot of these transcripts, uh, she just really stands out with regard to the degree of cooperation, as always, volunteering information that's responsive, even when it's not necessarily even something that the interviewer is trying to elicit. Now, she appears multiple times, of course, before the committee. Uh, one answer that really stands out in Hutchinson's testimony regarding Navarro is when she is asked whether or not the Proud Boys ever came up in the Trump White House after the election. Answer, quote, I remember Mr. Meadows and Mr. Perry talking about all of all of the groups with several other members of Congress, mostly the ones included in the December 21st meeting. I remember Mr. Brooks mentioning some of the groups, Mr. Biggs, Mrs. Marjorie Taylor Greene, although it was Congresswoman-elect at the time. Mr. Navarro had talked about them a couple of times, had brought in packets for Mr. Meadows' review, and I remember skimming through them and saying something about 
if QAnon supports this theory, not reading too much into it myself, but just trying to see what it was about. Internally, that is the kind of extent that I currently remember. Question. So you remember all of those coming up, QAnon, Proud Boys, and Oath Keepers, before January 6th, in discussions with the White House? Answer, correct. Page 88. So that's that's certainly interesting, right? You know, uh, Navarro has this plan about delaying the count, and he's talking about the Proud Boys as well. So one wonders, you know, hmm, this looks to be like, you know, I don't want to say Plan B, but, you know, at least Plan C, right? Okay, well... We know we don't have the votes. We know that it's not going to suffice. So, you know, let's attack the Capitol. And if you look at the timing, by the way, the timeline on January 5th is kind of interesting, right? So um, you've got this connection between Bannon and Navarro. And, uh, you know, I believe that it may be the case that Navarro uh, tells Bannon it doesn't look like the Green Bay sweep part is going to work doesn't look like we have the votes. It doesn't look like we're going to be able to delay the count. And then later on, uh, Bannon talks to Trump. And then, uh, you know, you've got the, the, the events of the following day. So that may be a, a kind of a pivotal point where they decide, you know what? We need to go through with this plan. We need to have people actually occupy the Capitol so that we can implement John Eastman's scheme of delaying the count until January 7th and then using a provision of the Electoral Count Act to try to argue that we need to have a contingent election in the House. Now, that's my current headcanon on, on how that went down, um, but there's not a lot of, you know, direct evidence to support that. Unlike Peter Navarro, I'll admit it, right? Um, you know, that's an inference. There's, you know, not direct evidence of that. Anyway, so I'm going to skip around a bit in uh, Hutchinson's testimony in her March 7th interview. Hutchinson is asked, quote, but you think it was either Mr. Navarro or somebody on his team who recommended Mr. Meadows call Mr. Stone? Answer, that's correct. Page 179. So, again, pretty interesting. We might associate Navarro in this time frame most closely with Bannon. He's clearly also willing to work with absolutely anyone. Doesn't matter if there's a feud between Bannon and Stone. Navarro is going to work with both of them. In her June 20th transcript, Hutchinson had this to say, quote, Peter had, at a few points, come into our office with material regarding proving election fraud in the 2020 election. It's my understanding that he was never a participant in the meetings that Mr. Meadows would have in his office with either Scott Perry or Bernie Carrick, Ruggi Giuliani, a lot of people that were in and out of our office at, at that time, nor did Peter have a formal meeting with the president on these matters. Peter would frequently bring items to our office that I felt Mark didn't need to further expand on, so I would normally just take the items from Peter and say, thank you. The items throughout December, early January in particular, he would come and he would give these little speeches about why it was important and why we should be paying attention to it and why he needs to meet with the chief and the president about it. At one point, I had sarcastically said, oh, this is from your QAnon friends, Peter, because Peter would talk to me frequently about his QAnon friends. And he said, have you looked into it yet, Cass? I think they point out a lot of good ideas. You really need to read this. Make sure the chief says it, 
season. And I just sort of left it at that. Cheney. So he was he was being sarcastic when he said his QAnon friends or answer. I do not take it as sarcasm. Throughout my tenure working for the chief of staff, he would frequently bring in memos and PowerPoints or various proposals that he would he would also expand on, you know, saying, quote, Hugh is saying this. Pages 72 to 73. So, again, once again, QAnon figures into it, and uh, it appears that uh, Peter is, if he's not going full QAnon himself, certainly working closely with people who do. Now, it reminds me of this back channel pod, that uh, the QAnon pod, that Kelly Sorrell talked about in Exhibit 10 of the Vallejo material. Uh, over a year ago now, I think I had did that episode. Hirschman and Molly Michael were trying to control Trump's inbox. But Hutchinson's testimony makes it clear that Navarro would just walk stuff around the Trump White House. Uh, he may not have had a formal meeting with Trump, but at some point Trump certainly did get a copy of the Navarro report because he referred to it in his December 19th Will Be Wild tweet. Alright, so moving on from Hutchinson, we know Navarro is working with Powell, Byrne, Flynn, Giuliani, Stone, and Bannon. Anyone else? Why, yes. Peter Navarro also appears in Ali Alexander's trans transcript. Answer. This is the witness, Alexander. What I can say is that I'm just going to volunteer this information, even though, again, I don't think it has anything to do with the Capitol attack. I spoke with White House advisor Peter Navarro on January 5th at our rally, and to my recollection, that's the f my first time ever talking to him. Page 102. Question. Okay. Answer. And, you know, he was at the rally. So we spoke for two minutes, and I introduced him. Uh, going on later, also on page 102, uh, Alexander again, quote, And another gentleman I talked to at the White House was, and we did talk about election integrity, but I don't recall talking about the 6th, Garrett Ziegler, who worked for Mr. Navarro. And I know we talked about election integrity. I don't recall talking to him about the 5th or the 6th. And I don't see how he would be in any authority of, to, ki to kind of do anything like that. Uh, again, also page 102. So, Ali Alexander working both with uh, Peter Navarro and... Uh, Garrett Ziegler. Although, once again, it appears that Ziegler is doing the actual work, such as it is, and Navarro is doing uh, things such as speaking. Another thing uh, that uh, figure who mentions Navarro quite a bit is Bernie Carrick. So, Giuliani's transcript is a little bit less, less useful than it ought to be, because he takes the fifth quite a bit. But Bernie Carrick, interestingly, uh, cooperates pretty well. Um, I mean, he never invokes the fifth, and his memory problems seem pretty normal, especially compared to someone like, let's say, Jared Kushner. I don't think he appears to have been coached, um, but you can get a lot at a lot of what uh, Rudy Giuliani is doing through the Bernie Carrick transcript, uh, who described himself as, quote, the buffer between Mayor Giuliani and everyone. In the context of a question about people who were working with Giuliani regularly, on his investigation of allegations of election rigging, Carrick lists several people. Phil Waldron, two guys named Conan and Todd, 
Christina Bob, Catherine Fries, and one other person whose name he does not recall, but um, seems to have left. I mean, if you look between the lines and re look at the redaction boxes, it, it seems like this other person he was working with that uh, got COVID and left. Um, he then describes another person, a woman who worked for Peter Navarro, who helped with data collection. Uh, on prompting, Carrick says that it's, quote, Joanne Miller. I'm not sure of the last name. I think Joanne Miller is her name, end quote. Page 20. This, of course, is Joanna Miller, which, you know, close enough. He's actually not wrong on the last name. He's wrong on the first name. It's not Joanne. It's uh, Joanna. And also he adds uh, Boris Epstein and Jenna Ellis to, to the motley crew of people that Giuliani was working with. On page 83 of his transcript, Carrick confirms something else that the committee investigators already know, that Joanna Miller was actually the author of the report overview to 12 to 20. History, executives, vote manipulation ability, and design foreign ties, which was supposedly written by Catherine Fries. Now, this document is one that is, you know, I've, I've talked about uh, in the podcast before, in the context of Miller. Um, on May 17th, 2020, sorry, 2021, The Guardian published a story stating that they had obtained a copy with Miller's name rather than Fries's name. So, in other words, there was an early version of this report that appeared with Joanna Miller's name rather than Catherine Fries's name. Um, now, this is pretty weird because it's a uh, UK newspaper. The article in The Guardian doesn't mention why Miller's name was removed and Fries's name is inserted. In fact, very few people have appeared to make anything of this, even though people have reported on it. But uh, it's clear that, of course, why would you want to do this? Why would you replace Miller's name with Fries's name? Is it just because uh, Miller is, you know, just uh, some junior aide and uh, Fries is an attorney? No, that's not it, right? Joanna Miller violated the Hatch Act. She's not supposed to do campaign work. She's a White House employee working for the so-called trade czar. So that's why they would have to put Catherine Fries's name on things, not for PR or publicity. They're trying to obstruct justice and conceal a definite Hatch Act violation. It's clearly, it's a bright line. A White House aide such as Miller could not have authored such a project legally. So by page 84, incidentally, uh, Carrick, who continually refers to Miller as a, quote, a girl, or that girl, remembers that her name is Joanna and not Joanne. On page 143, Carrick also claims that the only person he interacted with from the so-called Navarro team was Joanna Miller. So, yeah, um, we can put a pin in that, uh, you know, maybe get back to Joanna Miller and this document that she so-called ghost wrote uh, for Catherine Fries later on. On page 171 of the Carrick transcript, there's also an interesting exchange regarding the doc what the document uh, discloses. Now, Carrick's attorney, Timothy Parlator, that name should be familiar, of course, claims that they've released what they can release, but that uh, he would be pretty willing to give the committee everything if Benny Thompson would, quote, agree to make this public, which, of course, is pretty silly. It's all going to be made public anyway. Uh, but uh, apparently Carrick did withhold some material 
Uh, and of course, this is uh, the former attorney for Cassidy Hutchinson, someone who it looks like may have uh, obstruction of justice issues, uh, not just with regard to Hutchinson, but perhaps also with regard to Carrick. So it's pretty clear, actually, I think from the transcript itself, that Carrick himself wants to be more cooperative than what Parlator seems to want to allow. So that, that's certainly interesting. I mean, if I'm reading between the lines correctly. Carrick seems responsive, almost as if he's a man who's already faced the criminal justice system and doesn't want to risk it again for Trump. Because, uh, you know, he's not getting another pardon. So it's in this context um, that there's this uh, exchange. Answer. Quote, if I had to, if I had to, not guess, we got a bunch of material from Navarro. You know, Navarro did a couple of different reports on the election, but there was a lot of material that came from him, you know? And these were referrals, you know, people that provided reports and things like that. You know, I remember there was a bunch of stuff that came from him. Question, so did he, I know he gave you reports. Did he give you backup evidence to go with those reports? Answer, I think a lot of the backup was in the reports themselves. Question, okay, not raw data per se, but descriptions of it? Answer, yeah, yeah. Okay, so again, you know, we, we know that Peter Navarro doesn't actually have any evidence. He just uh, has people, uh, junior staffers on his staff, who are misquoting information and misquoting articles uh, and, you know, quoting people like Steve Bannon and Phil Waldron as if they were somehow authorities. The investigators also asked Carrick about the Will Be Wild tweet on the morning of December 19th and why Trump began to focus on January 6th around that time. And Carrick claims predictably that, well, he doesn't know why that happened. And in an instance, I think, eh, I don't know. Uh, might, might be a little bit suspect with regard to Carrick's testimony. Carrick claims that he knew that there, uh, didn't know that there was going to be an event on January 6th, until about 1 o'clock a.m. on January 6th, when Giuliani told him that he wanted to be there, on page 196. In any event, just more evidence that Navarro was violating the Hatch Act here, right? He's not supposed to be doing ca campaign work with Rudy Giuliani or Bernie Carrick or anyone else. Nonetheless, he's doing it, and his entire staff is going along for the ride. Next up, we have Christina Baugh, an attorney who worked with Giuliani, who also happens to be a reporter for the One America News Network, who was interviewed on April 21st, 2022. She also mentions Navarro, and the first time Navarro comes up is in a connection to the report that was supposedly authored by Catherine Fries, but again, actually authored by Joanna Miller. Now, again, let's consider that Bob is an attorney and understands the Hatch Act. Um, this interview occurs after the Carrick interview, but Bob offers a much more elaborate rationalization for why Miller's name was eliminated and Fries's name was added. Question. All right. So here we have up here exhibit number 10. This is just a cover sheet. It's called Dominion Voting Systems. And then it's Overview, dated 12 to 20. You scroll down there, it says History, Executives, Vote Manipulation, Ability and Design, foreign ties. And Mrs. Fries's name is on there. Have you ever seen this before? Answer. I've never seen it. Question. 
Did you know that Ms. Freeze was working on a report related to Dominion voting machines? Answer, I did not. Question, there's some suggestion that Ms. Freeze took over this report for somebody else named Joanna Miller. Do you know who Joanna Miller is? Answer, I do know Joanna Miller. She was, at the time, like a 22-year-old aide to Peter Navarro. There's no way that, no. Question, what was her role with if anything, related to claims of fraud or looking into allegations of improprieties related to the election. Answer. She helped Peter Navarro. I mean, she worked for him. And Peter put out his three reports, whatever, and Joanna did a lot of research on that. And this could be a compilation of Joanna's work. She's very smart and very capable. I had not seen this before, but if she took it over, it was... It was Joanna was junior enough that she wouldn't put her name on a report. Do you know what I mean? It would have been, she would have been providing research to Peter, and Peter would have owned it to the extent that he wanted to use it. I don't, Joanna would not have been drafting a report in and of herself. This could be, I don't know, I mean, I've never seen this document before, but it could be something that Joanna put together and was planning on giving to Peter or something, but she would not have put her old name on it. Page 69. Now, this is a witness who I do not think is testifying truthfully, right? It's not enough for her to have not seen the document before, which she clearly wants to say. Uh, or, you know, she could have just said, I didn't read it closely. No, no, she is like, she's never seen it at all. And yet somehow, even though she's never seen this report at all, she crafts this elaborate rationalization for why Miller's name was removed and Freeze's name was added. But again, she's never seen it. So why does she have this elaborate rationalization? She, uh, she doesn't know anything about it, allegedly. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that that uh, seems very credible. Now, I love the way the investigators actually handle this whole thing. No one mentions the Hatch Act violation at all. Navarro set up this ruse that his staffers are doing this work on their own time, but that's clearly a lie. They are doing absolutely nothing else in the post-election time frame. They're doing research on behalf of the campaign on the government's time. Now, in a normal administration, um, this on-their-own-time ruse wouldn't have even been attempted. Every government employee knows about the Hatch Act. Everyone is trained on it. This is a very bright-line violation but it's pretty magical that the investigators don't actually point this out. And I'm pretty shocked at how blatantly Free, uh, Bob rather just lies about it. Uh, she knows exactly why Miller's name was taken off and Freese's name was put on, and it has nothing to do with Miller's youth. Anyway, that's my opinion. Uh, maybe not. They asked Bob repeatedly about Miller, and she talks very openly about how much she worked with Miller, and with no apparent concern for the fact that she's working on the campaign, and Navarro and Miller are supposedly working at the White House. Answer. So, I would have gotten connected with Joanna later, probably, like, right before Christmas. And I remember sharing information with her, I guess, you know, trying to check my own work and check numbers because she had done work for Peter Navarro's reports. But it was nothing more than that. Like, just being, hey, where did you get, you know, checking her sources, checking my sources, we had a couple of conversations about it, but that was it. Question. Who connected you with Ms. Miller? Answer. Probably Peter. Rudy and Peter worked together, and they probably had us... I don't remember. 
I'm, I'm guessing. Were you asked to work with Ms. Miller to compile any information or to, or to do anything in particular? Answer, I don't remember specific, like, hey, will you work with her? But, you know, Peter Navarro was looking into the election stuff. Rudy was looking into the election stuff. So it made sense that we would share notes. I say that informally, share notes. But that's it. Question, do you think it was odd that she, being a White House aide or employee, was doing this with Peter Navarro looking into claims related to... Uh, answer, no, I, foreign, based on the report, is foreign interference. I think that's perfectly appropriate to do. And Mr. Navarro, of course, is the trade advisor for the administration. He wasn't... There's an audio distortion at this point. Uh, we don't get what she says. Question. Say that again? I'm sorry. He was also the advisor on China. Peter Navarro had a broad range of capabilities and abilities. And so, no, I do not think it was inappropriate for them to be looking into this. 69 to 70. So, you know, maybe Bob really is that dumb. Uh, but that's not how the Hatch Act works. And she's skirting around it. You know, she, she knows what it is. She knows that these kind of things aren't in Peter Navarro's position, position description. That he actually has an area of authority and this has nothing to do with it. Uh, he knows that White House staff don't get to get involved in the campaign. She knows that she herself is working for the campaign. Was also working with Miller. And doesn't seem any problem at all. But is careful to characterize this cooperation as, quote, you know, sharing notes. Again, they're doing far more than that. Um, it's inappropriate for Miller to be doing this with her. And, uh, you know, it's, she works in the executive branch. Bob is working uh, for the campaign. And is also, by the way, also a journalist. Which means, of course, that, you know, there's, there's no privilege of any kind that can possibly attach to this. Because if you're working with someone who's a journalist, there's no expectation of privacy. And I think it's pretty clear in the transcript that once she realizes what the investigators are really asking her... She tries to backtrack a little bit and minimize the extent to which she worked with Miller. But every now and then, she slips up and tells the truth, as she does when she is asked about Garrick Ziegler. Question. Sorry, answer. Garrett and Joanna are, it's like they're interchangeable. They sat right next to each other outside of Peter Navarro's office. And to the, I don't have a specific thing that I can say this was the exchange of information, but I... I remember talking to them. Question. Okay. And without getting into necessarily the specifics or seeking from you the exact information you gave to them, what was your understanding of what they were doing with the information or the help that you were giving them? Answer. I don't know. I mean, the same thing we were all doing, just trying to figure out what happened. I didn't ask, hey, are you compiling a three-volume report on this? Like, I don't know. We were just talking. Page 71. The same thing we were all doing. I don't know what they were doing, but it was the same thing I was doing. How, how can you make that claim if you don't... One of those things is a lie. The Navarro report? Never heard of it. Nonetheless, when she's told that Navarro said that much of the information in the Navarro report came from Giuliani's team, Bob agrees. And so the investigators ask about who else was working with them? Question. And who else from Mr. Giuliani's legal team was working with Ms. Miller or Mr. Ziegler or Mr. Navarro? Answer. I think Catherine Freese did for a little while. I don't know. 
Uh, Catherine and I actually did not work very closely together. She was, as you can tell, doing other things than what I was doing. So I don't know what she did with Peter Navarro or not, but as far as I know, it was just Joanna and Garrett, 72. So again, it's not just some incidental contact. You have Bob admitting that multiple people in the White House were working with multiple people in the campaign on the same project, but this is somehow excusable in the, under the Hatch Act because Peter Navarro is somehow an expert on China? Now, of course, China does figure in the Navarro report, but that doesn't make it real, right? I mean, it's not even the main focus. And even if it were, there's no special China clause in the Hatch Act. This is just completely ridiculous. The investigators then show Bob uh, an email, Exhibit 13, from Jenna Ellis to Jason Miller, Tim Murtaugh, Ross Worthington, Vince Haley, and Rudy Giuliani. There are charts and figures in the PowerPoint attached, and they ask Bob if these look familiar, and she says, quote, It looks like what's in Peter's report. I've read his report. I don't know. I didn't ask. I don't know where this came from. End quote. So there's no don't ask, don't tell clause in the Hatch Act. Um, what she's doing under oath here is the legal definition of willful ignorance. And she's not even transparent about it. All right. So next we'll turn to uh, another Trump White House insider whose transcript is probably worthy of his own episode. It's the director of White House Personnel Office, John or Johnny McEntee. Now, McEntee is a rather curious figure. He worked at Fox News and started off in the Trump campaign as a volunteer, but rose up through the ranks of the Trump campaign to get a job at the Trump White House. McEntee was fired in 2018 after being denied a security clearance due to gambling debts and unspecified security concerns. Eventually, McEntee was rehired and appointed to the office of the Director of White House Personnel in February of 2020. McEntee is also close to Peter Thiel, who invested $1.5 million in Johnny McEntee's dating app for conservatives, The Right Stuff, in 2021. Uh, McEntee was born in 1990, but sadly, tragically, as a Kushner uh, condition, uh, serious mem memory issues with regard to his testimony, um, which, uh, by the way, was paid for something by the, uh, the the Trump pack, but which, of course, was actually probably the, the Save America pack. In other words, he identifies in his testimony that, yes, yes, his attorney is paid for by the Save America PAC. So, kind of interesting. McEntee's deposition was held on March 28, 2022, with Schiff, Cheney, and Kensinger all present. He was represented by David Warrington and Michael Colombo of the Dillon Law Group, who also represented Michael Flynn, both Kramers, Katrina Pearson, and Michael Roman from the fake elector scheme, among others. So, basically... You know, after having gone through a lot of these, if you see the witnesses represented by Warrington and Colombo, you know that they're not going to be a fully cooperative witness. This is a firm that covered all the central players and all the, uh, the parts of the January 6th story that are most likely to wind up causing legal problems for Donald Trump. So this would be the opposite of the, the Jared and Navanka uh, group, uh, Dillon Law Group, is representing a whole bunch of people who are very close to Trump and who are 
decidedly not cooperating. Johnny McEntee provide, produced only one document in response to the committee's subpoena, which is, you know, just, uh, the, anyway, they asked about that. He's like, yeah, no, I, I went through everything, you know, just, just one document here. Johnny McEntee significantly also appeared before D.C. Grand Jury on January 20th of 2023. So he's got his own legal issues that he's got ongoing and uh, presumably still getting his legal expenses paid for by Trump and all that money that Gary Kobe raised from T-Magic. So during his year at the White House Personnel Office, McEntee was known for making erratic and arbitrary staffing decisions, antagonizing White House staff, and generally uh, being a toady, a sycophantic toady to Donald Trump. Everything about Johnny McEntee is suspicious. Now, this is the kind of guy who, you know... Um, I don't know. I'm not saying Donald Trump had prostitutes brought to him in the White House, but if he did, I think Johnny McEntee would be just the person uh, to do that on his behalf. Uh, that's completely baseless, by the way. I, that's based on nothing. You know, some people are saying that that's a thing that, that might have happened. There's no factual basis for anything substantive that we could conclude that Johnny McEntee was definitely procuring prostitutes for Trump at any point in time. Uh, I can understand why people might think that, just based on Johnny McEntee's reputation for hiring attractive teenagers to work in the Trump White House. Uh, but that's completely unfair. Uh, on closer examination, the fitness models and former Rockettes and cheerleaders and dancers that McEntee hired weren't teenagers. They, they had an average age of, of 21. So, yeah. All right, anyway. A little bit fun there, but, you know, again, Johnny McEntee is basically, I won't, I'm not going to say he's a pimp, um, but, you know, this is a guy who, who basically makes all his hiring decisions based on hotness. He just bought, brought in a whole bunch of hot girls uh, into the White House. I just, weird. Anyway, um, good for gender equality, though, I, I suppose, um, you know, assuming you, you do enough crunches. Now, Navarro's name appears quite often in the McEntee transcript. So, remember how uh, McEntee found absolutely nothing relevant and only handed over one document to the committee? Well, fortunately, they have the other end of some of McEntee's communications, such as a text exchange with Alexandra Priate, the aforementioned associate of Steve Bannon, who actually did comply with her subpoena. So, this is a pattern very typical of how the Trump White House worked. Priate and McEntee were acting as intermediaries between Bannon and Trump. Uh, the committee shows McEntee Exhibit 17, which is a text exchange between Johnny McEntee and Alexandra Priate from December 13, 2020, at 1.01 p.m. Question. Ms. Priate writes, KG wants Steve and POTUS to talk. Steve have three next steps that he can take to stop the steal. Also, he needs to meet with Navarro, who has gone over the numbers. Steve would be free to talk with him, of course. Thoughts? So, I'm assuming, again, Steve refers to Steve Bannon. Is that correct? Uh, McAdee. Uh-huh, yes. Is KG Kimberly Guilfoyle or someone else? Answer. That's my guess, yeah. Question. Is there any other KG you can think of that it might be? Answer, there is not. So do you know why, if it was Mrs. Guilfoyle, 
Ms. Guilfoyle wanted Steve Bannon to talk with the president. I don't. Page 103. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit in the McEntee transcript. Question. Going back to that first chronologically, I know it's a little hard to read. Ms. Preate wrote, Also, he says he needs to meet with Navarro, who has gone over the numbers. Do you know if that means Steve Bannon is saying that the president needs to meet with Navarro? Answer. I think this is saying Steve Bannon needs to meet with Navarro. Question. Okay. Steve Bannon needed to meet with Navarro. So, do you know whether... That's the answer, by the way. He, he, he actually interrupts the investigator. That's... I'm just... Let me see. KG wants Steve and POTUS to talk. Yeah, that's... She's saying Steve Bannon needs to meet with Navarro. Question. Do you know whether Steve Bannon ended up meeting with Peter Navarro about the numbers? Answer. I don't. Question. Do you have any conversations with Peter Navarro about challenges to the 2020 election? Answer. Not that I recall but I remember him spending a good amount of time looking into it. Question. And do you know why he, in particular, was looking into it? Answer. I don't. Okay. Is that an unusual thing, given his role as a trade advisor? Answer. Yes. But I know he has done something similar. I don't know. He liked to research things. But, yeah, I guess in his role as trade advisor, it was probably odd. Question. Do you know that the president, if the president asked him to have that role, Answer. I don't know that. Question. Do you know if Mark Meadows asked him to have that role? Answer. I don't know. I don't know that. Question. Okay. Are you familiar with the Green Bay Suite? Answer. No, I'm not. Question. Okay. Do you know what role, if any, Mr. Navarro had with regard to encouraging members of Congress to object to certification of the 2020 election? Answer. No, I don't know that. Pages 103 to 104. So there's a lot to unpack here in uh, this line of questioning regarding this email exchange between Preate and McEntee, who, again, were trying to arrange meetings between Bannon and uh, Trump and possibly also Navarro and Trump, uh, sorry, Navarro and Bannon. So obviously, Navarro worked with his staff and attorneys in the Trump campaign to write the Navarro report on orders either from Mark Meadows or from Trump himself. And we have McEntee, like Christina Bob, freely admitting that Navarro was spending a lot of time on this campaign work while supposedly also working as a trade czar. And, rather remarkably, John McEntee claims to have no knowledge of the Green Bay sweep. This, despite the fact that a the Packers sweep um, was a historically important play devised by none other than Vince Lombardi, and McEntee played quarterback in football, you know, in uh, at the University of Connecticut. Uh, interestingly, Lombardi himself always referred to the play as the power sweep, uh, rather than the, uh, the... But many times people will call it the uh, the Packers sweep, even though, um, yeah, Lombardo, Lombardi basically uh, got the idea from a play that the Steelers used to run against the Packers in the late 1940s. Um, and no, certainly the Green Bay Sweep is something that, that Navarro invents. It's not even called that. Anyway, the play is still run today. McEntee couldn't even acknowledge that, you know, oh, this is a football play. Um, the fact that he knows that the Green Bay Sweep refers to something other than Vince Lombardi's sweep play kind of gives away the game here. He must know something. 
It also shows something about McEntee's role at the White House, which has already been well documented, right? He's supposedly the director of the personnel office, and yet at the same time, he had begun work um, in the White House context as Trump's body man, right? And that work apparently is continuing. So uh, he's basically acting as a personal secretary to Donald Trump, uh, is a point of contact for people such as Bannon's associate, Alexandra Preate. Not really part of his official duties. Presumably, he's doing this kind of work simply based on his personal relationship with Donald Trump. It's also interesting that Kimberly Guilfoyle, who is apparently uh, dating Donald Trump Jr., of course, uh, has to go through three different layers of people in order to, to get a message to Trump, um, which, you know, okay, says a lot about the family, I guess. On page 118, uh, Johnny McEntee is asked, if he had ever discussed the Navarro report with Peter Navarro, and he recounts this conversation that he had had with Navarro. Answer. I think we briefly discussed it once in the executive office building in passing. Question. Do you recall what you discussed? Answer. I know he thought there was a lot of stuff that he could discover, and I guess he was more positive on the document than I was. Question. Okay. Have you read the document? Answer. No just from what I was hearing. And I think this was just right before he came out with it, you know, as he was, like, doing his research or whatever. Question. In what way were you less positive about it than he was? Answer. Well, I was just... What I had seen, like, those things were handed to our team, or when I was sort of just tracking the news, it didn't seem like there was enough that was going to make any sudden change. Question. Did you have any discussions with the president about the Navarro report? Answer. Not that I recall, no. Question. Do you recall having conversations with anybody about the Navarro report? Other than the conversation you just mentioned with Mr. Navarro himself? Answer. I don't. Question. Do you know who, in addition to Mr. Navarro, was involved in preparing the Navarro report? Answer. I assume the people on his team, like some of those junior staffers. Question. Okay. Uh, what about Joanna Miller? Answer. Yeah, that sounds right. Question. And Garrett Ziegler? Answer. Those are two of his junior staffers, so they probably would have worked on it. Yes. Pages 118 to 119. Now, note here again that he claims that he hasn't read it, but he understands it based on conversations with people inside the White House about it, but he really has no recollections of any of these specific conversations that he can volunteer. He also claims not to discuss it with Trump or anyone else, but also claims that his entire understanding of the report was based on second-hand conversations. Again, you have to pick one. You have to pick a lie here, right? So you didn't read it. You only know about it second-hand. But you also didn't have any second-hand conversations. Seems implausible. So this is just further documentation, yet again, of how important the committee sees this relationship between Bannon and Navarro and the, the crafting of the Green Bay Sweep, the Navarro Report, and all the rest of it. All right. Let's turn now to a another well-connected, uh, well, insider who mentions Navarro in their testimony, the fundraiser, Catherine Wren, who testified on December 17th, 2021. Like many other witnesses, she's asked about the Will Be Wild tweet from December 19th, 2021, but claims that she only learned that there was going to be an event on January 6th, later in the month. She also claims to have only met Navarro on January 5th, 2021, 
but adds some insight into his activities. Answer. I think I would have done like a sight walkthrough at some point at the Ellipse. And then I went over to the Willard at some point, and then dropped by the rally that was going on, like the Freedom Plaza one. And at some point, I walked Peter Navarro over to the event, and he spoke. And then that evening, we had an event at the Trump Hotel. It was just a cocktail watch party. And then I went back to the Willard and went back to bed. 2.25. Question. And what? Somebody asks you to walk Navarro to Freedom Plaza, right? If I'm remembering right? I feel like there was a text or somebody. You were doing somebody a favor? Are you just friendly with him? Uh, I can't remember. I may be misstating. Answer. No. I didn't know him prior to this. So, like, I don't know how I would have... It may have been Alexandra Preate who put me in touch with him. Page 227. So, it's a little bit strange here that Navarro, uh, you know, has to have Caroline Wren hold his hand to walk over to the Ellipse. Um, she also apparently found a laptop for Navarro to use for a Skype interview with Newsmax on January 5th. All right, Kimberly Guilfoyle was also asked about the same event in the Trump townhouse on the evening of January 5th. Question, do you remember whether Michael Flynn was present at that party? Answer, no, I do not. Question, do you remember seeing Peter Navarro? Answer, I have a recollection of seeing Peter Navarro, but I don't know if it was like that night or not, but maybe. Question, well, I was, specifically, do you remember him being present at the event at the Trump townhouse? Answer. I don't have, as I sit here today, a recollection of whether he was there or not. Question. Do you remember seeing him at some point that night? Answer. No. You know when you have like an image in your head of somebody that is at a location, but you don't know what time of day or what time it was? Like, I don't know if I saw him prior on prior occasions, and Trump D.C. Hotel is extremely busy with people coming in and out in the olden days. Uh, pages 227 to 228. So, January 2021 is apparently the olden days, according to Guilfoyle. But again, just more evidence that they want to know very specifically about Bannon and Navarro and what they may or may not have talked about on the evening of January 5th. Next, we'll turn to Donald Trump Jr., who's also working for the campaign. Now, his testimony took place on May 3rd, 2022. Obviously, I have not seen the recordings, but he actually comes across very differently in the transcript than he does in his viral videos. He seems measured, uh, serious, and uh, very careful with regard to what he says. Uh, a bit like his sister, actually. So, one of the things they ask him about is, of course, the exchange regarding the meeting between Bannon and Navarro. Which makes sense, of course, as Kimberly Guilfoyle does come up in this context. Question. Now, it's been reported publicly, and because he said it himself, Steve Bannon has said that, you know, he worked closely with your father and Peter Navarro on planning for how to potentially challenge the election on January 6th. Are you familiar with the fact that Mr. Bannon has said that? Answer. I have read that. Page 77. They then show Donald Trump Jr. the uh, Preate mcintyre exchange, and Junior claims that there's some personal relationship between Preate and Guilfoyle. They then ask him about McEntee, and Donald Trump Jr. says he knows him. And they ask him about his role in December of 2020, 
uh, McEntee's role, and Junior says, quote, he was just sort of, you know, my father's, you know, body man, end quote. Again, we've already established that's not true, right? He was uh, promoted to head up the White House Personnel Office in January of 2020. Junior is, is either apparently confused or, you know, um, that's basically just the, the personnel office job title is really just a cover uh, for his real role, which is basically, apparently, Donald Trump's uh, secretary slash body man slash valet servant, whatever. Question. The reference to KG, we understand to be Ms. Guilfoyle. Do you know at the time that Ms. Guilfoyle wanted Steve Bannon to connect with President Trump? Answer. No, not that I remember. Question. Did she ever discuss this with you at all that you can recall, whether, you know, before January 6th or after the fact, that she had sought to make this connection? Uh, answer. Not that I remember. Question. Now, it's been reported in, in the book Peril by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa that Steve Bannon talked to your father on December 30th of 2020, when your father was at Mar-a-Lago for the holidays and told him he needed to come back to D.C. to focus on January 6th. So that's just a preface to say, were you at Mar-a-Lago on December 30th that you can recall? Answer, I could have been, but, you know, I could also be there, you know, at the beach with my kids. So, you know, it's sort of a family vacation spot. So, yeah, I imagine I was there, but, you know, I don't recall having, you know, a meeting or, you know, a dinner or anything like that with Steve. Page 78. So, again, this conversation on December 30th between Bannon and Trump sure seems important. They're asking people about it. And uh, I did check Bannon's transcript, but again, like Navarro's transcript, uh, they didn't record questions for the record, because, of course, like Navarro, Bannon didn't show up. But, gee, it sure is striking that the two people that the Department of Justice is pursuing for contempt of Congress charges worked so closely together on the Green Bay sweep, and that every witness who could possibly know about the relationship between Bannon and Navarro is asked about it, asked about their meetings, and asked about their interactions with President Trump. All right. Since they asked Don Jr. about why Kimberly Guilfoyle's name appears in this context, let's return to Guilfoyle's transcript for a moment to see how she answers the same question regarding the same text from mid-December from Preate to McEntee. Question. Ms. Preate is representing, quote, KG wants Steve and POTUS to talk. Steve has three next steps that he can take to stop the steal. Also says we need, we, he needs to meet with Navarro, who has gone over numbers. Steve would be free to talk with him, of course. Thoughts? And McEntee says, I will relay to the boss what's the best number for Steve if he decides to call. And then I understand that's probably the name Ms. Preate gave uh, to Steve Bannon. Answer. I have no recollection of this whatsoever. So Kimberly Guilfold doesn't remember any of this. Question. Ms. Preate is pretty good friends with you, right? Answer. Yeah, she's a really nice person. She's a nice lady. Question. And do you remember having any conversation with her regarding Steve Bannon and POTUS talking? Answer. No, but she is close with Steve Bannon. But I don't know why my name was put into this. That's my honest to God. Like... I have no recollection, and this is actually surprising. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I don't know what this is. Pages 234-235. So, yeah, Kimberly Guilfoyle doesn't remember anything about anything. 
But the timeline is confirmed by Priate and McEntee's text exchange, of course. And according to Guilfoyle, none of this ever happened. But if it did, there's definitely nothing untoward about it. It's strange, that, by the way, that she's able to be so definitive about the fact that there's nothing bad about it, but she also has no recollection. Huh, I, I don't know. It has to be one or the other, right? I mean, if you don't remember at all, maybe it was something bad. You have no recollection of anything to do with it. Anyway, let's move on to Jenna Ellis, the Trump campaign lawyer who's already been mentioned in the testimony of Bernie Carrick and Christina Bob. Ellis's deposition took place on March 8, 2022, with Representatives Aguilar, Raskin, and Kensinger present. Uh, if I were to sum up the whole of Ellis's testimony in one phrase, it is this. Upon advice of counsel, I am invoking my constitutionally protected right to assert the Fifth Amendment. This is the phrase that Ellis used as a response to virtually every substantive question posed to her by the committee's investigators. Most of the attorneys, interestingly, uh, that were interviewed as witnesses were reluctant to invoke the Fifth Amendment. She has no problem with that. Uh, I mean, it's bad, right? I mean, if you're an officer of the court, you want to be able to practice law, you shouldn't have to be invoking the Fifth Amendment in front of Congress. Ellis has been censured by the Colorado Supreme Court for making false statements regarding the 2020 election. Uh, there's a link to that in the show notes. Uh, so again, yet another attorney getting attorneys. Although Ellis did take the fifth, uh, they did have her texts. She did supply those. So with reference to one of these, she was asked the following question. Ms. Ellis, there's another text message communication in your log with the identifier 7847. It's a group text message from November 21st, 2020. The participants in that text message, as reflected on your privilege log, are yourself, Andrew Giuliani, Peter Navarro, and Joanna Miller. What relationship did Andrew Giuliani, Peter Navarro, and Joanna Miller have with the Trump campaign? She takes a fifth. Question. Were Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Navarro, or Ms. Miller acting as attorneys for the Trump campaign? Or the direction of attorneys for the Trump campaign at this time? And again, Ellis takes the fifth. Pages 17 to 18. Alright. Now I know I said that uh, Navarro figures in many of these transcripts. Um, but I cite this example as, as kind of how they, these transcripts interlock. They, they may only really make sense when you read them as a whole, right? Because so many witnesses are taking the fifth, so many witnesses are uh, having all these memory problems. But again, this line of questioning shows just how keenly interested the committee is in the inappropriate nature of the relationship between the Trump White House and the Trump campaign. It's not just a Hatch Act violation, it's a conspiracy to violate the Hatch Act. Now, I know I've mentioned this before. I've downloaded all the transcripts. And I have them all in different little folders on my computer. And sometimes there's someone who uh, might fit into more than one folder, right? You know, I've got like a Pentagon folder, a National Guard folder, you know, an Oath Keepers folder. Um, sometimes, again, there's a problem. And one of these witnesses is Mark Fincham. What folder does he go into? Uh, you know, where, where do I put this transcript? Does he go in the Oath Keepers folder because he's a longtime Oath Keepers board member? Does he go in the fake electors folder or in the general GOP folder where I put most of the Republican elected officials? I stuck him in the Oath Keepers folder, but there's a lot of overlap. And incidentally, he's a friend of Peter Navarro's. Question. Do you know who Peter Navarro is? Answer. 
He's a very good friend, yeah. Question. Okay. Answer. He's a guy that walks around with two brains. Question. Between those same benchmarks, November 3rd, 2020, and January 20th, 2021, did you ever talk to Mr. Navarro about the 2020 election, including any work that he was doing related to the election? Answer. A few times. Question. And what do you remember him talk, talking to him about? Answer. About his three-volume report. Question. Did you say his three-volume report? Answer. His three-volume report. Question. And what did he tell you about his report? Answer. I don't know. It, 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 it was discussion. I don't know that I can actually par... It was a conversation. I, I did ask him, you know... Is this all, or is it worse than this? I remember asking him, is this, is this what we found so far? So, if you take a look at the various states that they had taken, uh, done an examination of, and basically it was a roadmap for us to do further examination, further due diligence. That, that's the substance of the conversation. Question. Do you know why Mr. Navarro prepared his three-volume report that you just referenced re relating to the election? Answer. Probably for the same reason I did the work. I engaged in the work product I did. We saw something that didn't make sense, and he investigated. He did some due diligence. He was an advisor to President Trump. I would expect that he would do nothing less. Question. Well, I asked because, in my understanding, he was a trade advisor. So, it... It... At least with respect to the election, it's not, to me, not at least immediately clear why he was doing an investigation or doing work related to the election. Answer. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that his expertise extends far beyond trade. His, his bona fides are unquestionable when it comes to statistical analysis, when it comes to the connection between political science and political behavior. So I am not at all surprised. In fact, I think he is preeminently qualified in order to exchange, engage in that kind of analysis. And as an advisor of the president, I'm not sure at that point. Obviously, I wasn't in the room, so I have no idea. But, you know, as you're looking for people with skill sets, no matter what advisory role they might have been pigeonholed into, if they had a skill set that would be useful in analysis, I would expect the savvy executive to see to it that his resources are allocated in the right place. Pages 146 to 147. And so here we see that Mark Fincham is as dumb as a bag of rocks. As an actual political scientist, I want to be clear. Navarro is not competent to practice political science. His report is garbage. Not even worth debunking. Uh, we're talking Italian space laser stuff. But to Mark Fincham, numbers is numbers. And statistics is statistics. There's nothing in Navarro's actual academic background that would qualify him to actually speak to any of these issues. In fact, he presents basic and regular features of, of United States elections as if they were completely mysterious. He cites none of the relevant literature. He is a complete and utter innocent when it comes to knowledge of the electoral process and the administration of elections. He doesn't even know enough to know how little he knows. He presupposed that Trump could not possibly have lost the election and so he set out to verify that. His conclusion was already arrived at before he set out to do any research whatsoever. After that, it's just a matter of woeful ignorance. Navarro's conclusion was wholly predetermined. To say that his report somehow constitutes 
political science is a crime against social science. Peter Navarro does not have two brains, however physiologically impossible that might be. He's actually quite single-minded. doesn't have two brains. He's not either literally or figuratively uh, to a completely unschooled idiot such as Fincham. Peter Navarro might seem to be an intellectual giant. Fincham calls it a three-volume report. Again, but the whole thing is 85 pages. That's not even really one volume, more like three chapters. And by the way, it has unnecessarily large pictures and figures. Volume three of the Navarro Report, volume three, is 12 pages long. It's not even a term paper or a freshman survey for a freshman survey course, right? It's the most embarrassing document to be produced by any government official in the history of government, going back to Hammurabi. In any event, again, uh, good to see how closely related, uh, you know, how closely associated, uh, once again, Peter Navarro is with other figures, including fake electors such as uh, Mr. Fincham. Now, speaking of state-level shenanigans, uh, we also find Navarro spearheading the effort to obstruct the transfer of power in Rudy Giuliani's transcript as well. Question. And I understand we already talked about the kind of role state legislatures and their authority to adopt or not adopt certain electoral slates. But do you remember participating in a call on January the 2nd with Phil Klein, the president, Peter Navarro, John Eastman, and reportedly up to 300 state legislators? Giuliani. I do, do recall a conversation like that, yes. It was an audio, audio, audio thing. And I made a presentation at that and listened to some of it. Probably not most of it. Question. What was the purpose of that call on January 2nd? Answer. To present our legal arguments to them that were being completely mischaracterized to the press. Question. Was there a goal, an outcome that you thought would come of it? Answer. Obviously, the goal and outcome was to seek more time to see if the allegations of voter fraud that we had in abundance could be accepted and would be analyzed. Page 98 and 99. So this is part of the Green Bay Sweep program scheme that somehow uh, Navarro's report or the objections raised in Congress uh, or somehow would cause state legislatures to throw out the votes of already appointed electors and substitute them with fake electors, and, and, you know, the fake elector certificates, way past the safe harbor deadline. So, as part of this process, Navarro and Giuliani surely would have realized that they didn't have the votes to do it, even if such a thing were possible. And this may have been why they turned to Plan B, the capital attack. I'm not going to spend too much time on Giuliani's transcript here, although it is remarkable that he continually refers to Navarro as someone who knows what he's doing. If Peter Navarro said it, it's good enough for him. So, for example, there's the report that Brian Geels, the CPA whose wife ran for Congress in my district in North Carolina in 2022, uh, moving here to do so. Anyway, C. Geels is supposedly reliable simply because Navarro verified it, as on page 126 of the Giuliani transcript, right? So... Um, neither one of these people, by the way, Navarro's not qualified, Gilles isn't qualified, uh, you know, th to do this kind of work. I mean, this is a lot like getting medical advice from a tarot card reader and having your hair hairdresser say that it's reliable. Neither one of them is, is qualified to do this work. But, you know, Mark Fincham, Rudy Giuliani, again, uh, yes, 
Because people will think that people who tell them what they want to hear is credible. All right. One other bit that is noteworthy in Giuliani's transcript is how closely Giuliani worked with Navarro's young staff, which is evident in the seating arrangements that Giuliani made on the occasion of January 6th, the Ellipse Rally. Giuliani. I had a group of people with me that all wanted to come, and they all wanted to be in the first two rows, people that worked both in my team and from the White House that we had been in communication with, maybe even from Navarro's office. So there's zero line between the campaign and the White House, even when it comes to the seating arrangements at the Ellipse on January 6th. Just completely interchangeable. Anyone can work on anything that they want at any time and claim executive privilege or perhaps attorney-client privilege at all times. All right, let's move on to some of the other witnesses who have some interesting things to say with regard to Navarro that I will handle in a little less detail. One of these is Eric Hirschman, uh, whose views on Navarro are pretty well known. I did a whole episode on Hirschman's testimony. Uh, his claims, which I think are true, um, you know, that he tried to keep the Navarro report and other material away from Trump, and also the confirmation that it was, of course, someone from Navarro's staff who let in Byrne, Powell, and Flynn into the White House on December 18th. All right. I would be remiss if I didn't include at least something from him, even though we've talked about him uh, before. Question. Let's look at Exhibit 24. This is January 5th. The attachment, The Art of the Steel, which I think is part of the Navarro Report, this is, understand, from Molly Michael, again to you and Mark Meadows. The text says, quote, I was asked to send this to Congress, initiated by Peter Navarro. So do you know why Peter Navarro wanted to send that to Congress? Answer, I don't know. I can't answer about what Peter Navarro did or was thinking. Question, do you recall whether you did anything with this document? Answer, I would have told Molly not to send it. Page 203. So, you know, whatever you think of Eric Hirschman, I, he's not lying to the committee here. They do have Molly Michaels' emails. Um, we know that she did not, in fact, send the Navarro report to members of Congress and represent it as something coming from Trump, which is what Navarro wanted done. And unlike many of the other lawyers around Trump, Hirschman seems to actually care about his ability to practice law. So his tone when he refers to Navarro is rather interesting. He doesn't believe the Navarro report is a factual document, but he's not as scathing toward Navarro as he might have been, indeed as scathing as we know uh, that he can be with regard to some other people. In any event, uh, he, he thinks that he's got this wall around Trump and that he's controlling the information flow. But as we've seen, people are trying to circumvent that and were certainly uh, successful. Now, you know, the issue isn't Trump reading the Navarro report, right? Yeah, we know he doesn't really read to begin with, but somehow, you know, enough information about it got to him that he included it in the Will Be Wild tweet. And of course it's interesting too, given the fact that so many people cite the Navarro Report as fact, that even within uh, you know these central figures, so few of them have read it, right? There's no evidence that Trump himself actually read it. He may have seen the thing, saw that there's lots of pictures, liked it, and decided it was good enough. Um, and it appears to be the case with, with many of these people, you know, who were involved, who, you know, claim, at least, that they didn't read it. So if Johnny McEntee is not reading it, right, uh, you know, why would we consider this as fact, 
right? The, the, the people who need to actually supposedly be reading the thing to verify that it's true, they're not even reading it. Um, I, I think it goes to the, the culture of the White House itself. Leadership comes from the top. Trump's not a, le a reader, you know, and none of the people that he's supposedly leading are reading. Nobody's reading. Reading is fundamental, people. So if you're going to talk about the Navarro Report, at least take the time to read it. All right. So um, let's move on again to Greg Jacob. Now, Greg Jacob, um, of course, uh, Pence's lawyer, has this to say when Matthew Morgan gave him a copy of the Navarro Report and asked whether it would be desirable to show the Navarro Report to Pence. Morgan had been skeptical of the report, and so too was Jacob. So, you know, the funny thing is, it appears that some of the people who actually read the thing are the people who are actually skeptical of it. Hmm, interesting. The people who think it's most credible are the ones who actually haven't read it. Answer. Again, Jacob. So, I had to be careful what I actually spent my time on. So, if it, if this was presented to me as a really credible Bible of everything I would want to know, I might have read it. Because I was interested, and I knew that it would actually come up in conversation with the Vice President, uh, what the underlying stuff I was giving him was. But none of my interactions with Mr. Navarro at the White House would have led me to think that this was something I needed to pay a lot of time or attention to. Answer. Did your interactions with Mr. Navarro give you reason to be skeptical of his report? Answer. Yes. Question. Why? Answer. I found that Mr. Navarro had a... He and I had different views about the role of le the legal process within the White House. Question. What does that mean? Answer. I was always committed to doing things by the book. And he often, our previous interactions, and I think he said something in some role he was doing an article about how I'm a bad person and he had previous run-ins with me on coronavirus stuff. So, it's coronavirus. Our previous actions had been coronavirus related. I suppose in fairness to him, there was a lot of urgency at that point in time, and lawyers are not always held in the highest regard when they are standing in the way of urgency and saying, there, these are the steps we need to go through before we can get the, to the kind of outcome that you're looking for. So, I can't get to the details of those things because, obviously, those are within the executive branch and both the incumbent and former would have to weigh in on executive privilege details. But at a high level, he viewed me as one of those legal obstructionists and I viewed him as insufficiently careful about the required process. Question. Did the Vice President Pence ever tell you how he viewed Peter Navarro? Answer, no. Pages 20 to 21. Now, Jacob here is very polite and lawyerly here, of course. You know, he says that, again, Navarro is insufficiently careful about the required process, which is a very carefully considered phrase, uh, you know, that you can translate as, as meaning that he thinks that uh, Navarro has a tendency to break the law. All right, let's move on now to Ivanka Trump, who seems to have gotten bitten by the same bug that have hindered Jared's ability to remember anything. They ask her about the same exchange between Preate and McEntee regarding setting up a meeting between Bannon and Navarro. And she says she knows nothing about that, she wasn't in contact with Bannon, and she also knows nothing about Kimberly Guilfoyle's involvement. It's on page 21, sorry, 200. 
uh, she never spoke with, uh, or at least claims that she never spoke with, Navarro regarding anything election-related. Page 200. When asked to give her general impression of Peter Navarro, Ivanka Trump offers this. Answer. We hadn't worked too closely together. On a few issues relating to job training and some vocational education elements of policies, he had a perspective and opinion. And I knew him, of course, from the campaign, the previous campaign, and then during our time in the White House. But I didn't work with him closely on any of those things, and I didn't know his involvement, if he had one, post-November 3rd. Question. Do you have any idea why a person with a background in trade or job creation was working on election-related issues in those days after the election? Answer. I don't know. Question. Okay. Page 202. Not sure I believe Ivanka here, right? I mean, it seems hard to understand how Navarro, who appears everywhere in that period, is somehow flying below her radar with regard to his work on his fraudulent report. And like many other people in the Trump White House, of course, they just seem to accept it as natural that Navarro can work on whatever he wants to with regard to the election campaign. And the investigators don't even think to ask Ivanka if Trump had asked Navarro to work on his report. Moving on to uh, another witness who uh, talked a little bit about Navarro. Kind of interesting. This is uh, Anthony Ornato. And Ornato is, asked, is being asked by investigators about the size of the crowd on January 6th. Remember, of course, Ornato has this weird dual relationship in the White House and the U.S. Secret Service. Ornato, in this context, brings up Navarro without any prompting. Question. Were you aware of this tweet, or th was there any discussion about the increased crowds as a result of President Trump's personal promotion of it? Answer. I'm sorry, what date was that? Question. This was January 3rd. Answer. I recall, and I believe we spoke about this in our last interviews, of that they didn't know the numbers at the time. That they were trying to... The president, I remember hearing... I think it was Peter Navarro wanting everybody to tweet out things to get people there. But they didn't know the numbers. Page 53. So, pretty interesting. We see that uh, various figures in the world of Trump are tweeting things to try to get more people to attend the rally on the Ellipse on January 6th. And so, you know, Peter Navarro is part of what's behind that. Peter Navarro is trying to recruit various figures inside the Trump administration to pump up attendance on January 6th. So again, uh, he's involved in, in every phase from the Navarro report to the Green Bay sweep to the fake elector scheme, even up to trying to make the January 6th rally bigger so that there would be more people to attack the Capitol. Um, again, that's just really interesting. Why would Navarro want the crowd to be as large as possible? I mean, this, he's not involved in the campaign. So, you know, he has this theory about delaying the certification to move to a contingent election. Um, you know, a trade advisor presumably wouldn't care about the size of a crowd for a president who's a lame duck after losing a re-election bid. But, you know, Navarro's trying to get the crowd to be as big as they can for some reason. I, I thought this was interesting. Ornato's transcript is the only one that I, I find this detail in. And he volunteers this information. So, pretty interesting. Now, a lot of the people who were asked about meetings between Navarro and Bannon 
aren't willing or able to give up anything particularly responsive, but Dustin Stockton does put Navarro at the Willard, which comes up in a line of questioning regarding Boris Epstein. Uh, you remember, of course, Stockton is an organizer who um, you know appears to be has been a pretty cooperative witness with the committee. Question. Do you know whether Mr. Bannon or Boris had their own so-called war room at the Willard? Answer. I saw both. Well, not both. I saw Boris several times at the Willard. I saw him pretty frequently. And I also saw Peter Navarro several times, like we crossed paths in the lobby. So I assumed that they were doing something somewhere in the Willard. Question. And is it your understanding that Mr. Navarro might have been meeting with Boris at the Willard? Answer. My assumption was that there was, like, a senior group, right? Because, I mean, the Willard was kind of like the central hub for everybody who was doing anything. And so, seeing Boris and seeing Peter, I would guess that they would be, from my experience in the past, like, they would be on the same kind of, like, level, organizing level. Pages 139 to 140. Now, presumably, uh, the DOJ would have access to hotel records, and hotel employees who'd be able to verify this information. Um, so even though most witnesses don't say much about the extent to which Navarro and Bannon were interacting at the Willard, we have them at the same place at the same time, thanks to Stockton's testimony. So I feel like we have a good sense of the kinds of things the grand jury would be interested in with regard to Navarro. The Navarro Report, Hatch Act violations, the Green Bay Sweep, obstruction of an official proceeding, various conspiracy charges, fraud, misappropriation of government resources, obstruction of justice, racketeering, and whatever the charge might be for instructing his staff to let Powell, Byrne, and Flynn into the White House on December 18th, 2020. All of this, in addition to his current contempt of Congress case that is being heard before Judge Maida. Now, maybe they're not going to charge all of these offenses, but the tendency has been for the government to pack as many charges as they can onto each defendant and then dismiss them if they plead to one or two of the most serious felonies. Not that I think Navarro would ever plead. Now, as it stands, um, Judge Maida, the hardest working judge in the D.C. district level, is considering the government's response to Navarro's executive privilege claims in his contempt case, which he received on April 28, 2023. Much like the Navarro report, this privilege claim is just pure buck, right? I mean, the government makes a pretty compelling argument uh, in it, in its six pages. Executive privilege is supposed to apply to advice to the president, not the many, many, many other things that Navarro was doing in his effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The government argues that Navarro confuses executive privilege with blanket testimonial immunity. They also note that privilege applies to matters related to the official duties of the official seeking to claim privilege. And the committee doesn't want to ask him about trade. They want to ask him about this, this election nonsense. So here's an excerpt from the government's brief. Uh, it's the last entry in the U.S. v. Navarro court listener link in the show notes. Quote, Defendant has never claimed that he was granted testimonial immunity. Instead, he told the select committee executive privilege, the related but distinct principle, 
mere moments after being asked if he would accept service of the committee's subpoena. This two-word response was sent prior to the defendant even learning what information the committee sought from him. Because he did not know the information that was sought, defendant could not have obtained in the few moments before he sent his response an informed assertion of executive privilege or immunity from the former president. Every OLC opinion, Office of Legal Counsel, every OLC opinion discussing immunity for contempt would require, at a minimum, an invocation in some form or fashion by a president and a substantive analysis of the information sought by Congress preceding the invocation. In sum, even if defendant had already detailed knowledge of 40 years of OLC canon at the time he received the request to accept service, he did not even know what was being sought from him and lacked what anyone who was the subject of a previous OLC opinion on the subject had received, an assertion of not just executive privilege, but also testimonial immunity from the privilege holder with respect to the particular process served. In other words, executive privilege applies uh, to certain domains. This is not within his policy uh, area. Uh, he doesn't have any actual record of privilege being claimed at the time. Um, moreover, privilege applies to specific matters and conversations. He just said executive privilege and just sort of waved his arms as if it just says, I never have to talk to Congress. That's not how executive privilege works. That, by the way, it's been successfully applied. In certain instances, in certain transcripts, various people are able to... Uh, assert executive privilege, and the committee accepted that. But Navarro, again, just says no. It just means it's blanket immunity. I never have to talk to, to Congress at all, ever, about anything. So, to sum it up, Peter Navarro is not a statistician, not a political scientist, not an attorney. Uh, he's, you know, basically, he's just saying, I'm an academic, and uh, everyone is willing to just sort of blanketly accept that. Uh, again, there are Plenty of actual well-qualified people in Republican circles who could have done this kind of work. Uh, Peter Navarro is not one of them. And by the way, no, you don't get to simply say executive privilege to the process server and get blanket immunity. That's not how this works. That's not how it ever worked. Executive privilege certainly doesn't relate to the process whereby you improperly use your staff to produce a poorly written and frankly embarrassing screed that somehow Navarro imagined would get state legislatures to end electoral democracy in the United States. It's just another example of Peter Navarro doing what he's best at, confidently talking about things that he really knows nothing about. So Judge Maida is going to consider this and write up a very detailed ruling that I predict will be a bench slap of Peter Navarro's privilege can't claim, and that will be that, and who will go to trial for contempt. All right, thank you so much for listening. Uh, check out the links in the show notes, and uh, have a, a great late spring, early summer, and hopefully we'll have a, another episode out uh, relatively soon.